Oh, he's Harry Potter. He's not, though. The boy who lived. He's not Harry Potter, sir. So anyway. Welcome back to We Want More, the Harry Potter and Methods of Rationality Analysis podcast. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm Brian Deacon. Hi, everybody. Hey, everybody. Hi. So, we are doing Chapter 108, The Truth, Part 5, Answers and Riddles. No, Gotta Mr. You, Bond, I expect you to die. <laughs> Gotta say, when this one came out, this was a highly anticipated one, I think, by the community. This is at the point where I was like part of the community watching, you know, other people read it on Reddit and stuff, and it was a lot of fun. So Yeah. Well, yeah, and this is totally the like explain all the things. Right. What the fuck so, yeah, is going if on? If there's still like like hidden surprises after this, then I will be surprised. Oh man. It sounds it sounds like Well, at I think least, at least need... all my outstanding questions. Okay, well, I was gonna say you need to ask yourself like do you feel confused about anything remaining? And if you don't, then yeah, maybe there's nothing left. I, was confu- I, I, I do actually, uh, I think I put them in our notes, like several points of confusion, but more just like, oh, you know, this was too hard for me to keep track of. And so I don't, especially the whole like fucking stones thing, resurrection stone, philosopher's stone. I can't, they both kind of do the same thing. I can't keep that shit straight. The sorcerer's stone. If you read it in exactly. English or in American <laughs> in, English, in English, uh, in, there's Harry's, Harry's pet rock that he had when he was a kid, his father's rock that he's carrying around now. I mean, so that's five rocks, you know. Uh, the body of Hermione is pretending to be a rock. Right, probably. Didn't he? He pretty much admitted it, didn't he? Uh, he said that it... Uh, no, he's, uh, he's like, oh, it might be the ring, but it's not really in... Quirrell yeah, he glanced at the ring. Quirrell guessed that it was the, not the stone, but the ring itself. And he said that that had been deliberate, that it wasn't actually the ring on his hands. So, like I said, I would keep her, you know, so as like a little dermal you know, insert. I just feel like, you know, we talked That's about true. how Quirrell did that, you know, with his teeth, but I would just be armed. I would be armed to the teeth. No pun intended with Literally. all kinds, all manner of weapons. I don't know. She could be like a, a strand of hair or something. I would want it to be something I wouldn't lose track of, but yeah, I guess there's probably some way to magically keep it on your body. Fingernail. Right. Of course like you that. make the mistake of nervously biting your fingernails and you've just, you know, <laughs> oh, shit, I just ate her mind. <laughs> Okay. You no, know, I wanted to pass up a sex joke on that, but I really couldn't. Yeah. You know, <sighs> that, that was fairly tame. Um, okay. So we are in the potion room right before the mirror, and they're hanging out for an hour making a potion. Making a potion. There's the, and so. Because it's such, such like a, a talky, I was about to call it an episode, which is kind of what it is. Um, that's what reminded me of, it reminds me of the, those final scenes in a Bond movie where the villain is explaining, you know, all of his fiendish plots while there's a, like a buzzsaw about to cut him in half. It reminds me more of the scene at the end of the Watchmen movie when Ozzy Mendez is explaining his master plan to, uh, yeah, except, but that's, that's basically the Night same Owl thing. And, well, except the difference, we, the, the, the very important difference between Ozzy's plan and, you know, Mr. No's plan is that Ozzy did his plan 45 minutes ago, right? It's uh, like, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not telling you this so you can stop me. This is already done. I'm just <laughs> gloating now. <laughs> yes. Although, a little different from this, at least, you know, as I'm reviewing it in my head, this wasn't so much like, oh, these are the things I'm planning. A little bit around like, oh, I've got something around um, getting the fucking witch stone. Is it the philosopher's stone? Um <laughs> stone current. Um, but yeah, it's not so much like, ah, oh, this is what I've been up to the whole time and yada, yada, yada. There's not a lot for him to be revealing. And to the extent that like the stuff that has yet to play out around the philosopher's stone, he doesn't reveal anything about that. He just sort of like explains all the things that we've been wondering about and like the stuff that has already happened. Right. But he said he explicitly won't talk about future plans. Yeah. 
so yeah, but otherwise it is just like Harry and Quirrell just kind of like hanging out, cooking, you know, shooting shit. Sure, yeah. Uh, I think probably my big takeaway for this whole chapter that was kind of like, wow, well, you know, you guys like really, I, I put it together in my head. It's like, uh, like Manton family fanboys, fangirls usually that like, you know, fawning over the latest serial killer. Like that is now my big, t- now that we've sort of like, you know, at least I feel that we've basically have seen the entirety of the Quirrell character that if there's more details later, they're not going to really like change much that like, okay, this guy is completely like amoral, unfeeling, lacking in empathy, selfish psychopath with no morally redeeming values. And y'all really need to like reevaluate why do you think he's so awesome just because he says smart shit. I mean, like, you know. Uh, like Moriarty is a lot of fun, even if he's a bad guy, right? Like you don't want to be Moriarty. You just think he's awesome. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's, what- it's you and I have been talking about, like, I don't get that impression. From you. It's the the weird way that like, there's this sort of general, like coming to his defense thing. Like the things that I have allowed myself to read, like out on Reddit or, you know, the rebuttals from the peanut gallery, there is a weird, almost kind of a knee jerk urge to defend the point. And it's almost like, well, you know, he has a point though. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, no, he doesn't. He really doesn't. You can be. An, he can sounds be, like he has a point. You can be a murderous asshole and still have a point. Yeah, but I'll, yeah, that's the thing. There's, and I think what I guess what's more interesting to me about this is that, like, I think the fan reaction to the book and what Yudkowsky wrote into this are not the same. <laughs> and I don't think. He, Quirrell was written with the intent of, I don't think there was an intent for him for there to be this like Charles Manchin adoration of a psycho killer thing going on. Maybe, I mean, yes, in the sense of like, okay, let's make him appealing, but I don't think as readers we're supposed to, you know, like fall for it. Like I think part of it is this like for us to see and be tempted by it and understand like the thorough appeal of like, God, I wish I was that hyper competent and confident of it like that's so that would be so nice to feel that way but i think like you're supposed to be like and by the way that is the temptation of like seeing yourself as this like rationalist god that you're going to take on these airs of you know feeling better than mere mortals and hey don't do that um and i think that's here like that is here and that's a lot of what we see when this kind of contrast between um, like Harry basically being, you know, saying to Quirrell, like, why are you such a, you know, unfeeling dick? Um, like that's us. Like that's kind of the the back and forth going on here. Um, but yeah, I feel it, it does. To, and I don't think that was there, but it does totally feel like to the extent that people like, so yeah, you are supposed to like find that super appealing and be drawn to it. But also you're supposed to realize, but yeah, that's, that's hollow. Like there's nothing there. Like, and it is yeah. that, that anti-hero thing. I think I said this like a long time ago that um, like the anti-hero thing is that like they're doing all the things you wish you could do, but you, you're supposed to feel bad about it. Not bad about it, but like it's the chocolate cake temptation um, that like, yeah, you get it, but hey, don't actually do that. Totally. I think that that makes sense. I mean, like, you know, I don't want to, you know, if I got to pick, I wouldn't want to be Professor Quirrell. And really this this chapter gives the whole backstory for honestly, I think his whole thing is like his, his whole backstory is sad. Like this, this is the, this, the life life story of somebody who tried to find happiness and meaning. Couldn't. No, well, so, so that's, I, so I think I, I was a little bit expecting that, but is that kind of your takeaway? Because we don't really see anything in here. His life story is that he's still 
like looking down his nose on mere mortals and like his little quotes. It's an awesome line. Like what my few joys in life is killing idiots. Like he has, it's not like, oh, he went through this, like, oh, and I suffered at the, you know, and I had this huge disappointment because I placed all my faith in humanity and it was, you know, and I was let down. He never did. He, he was like, oh, let me did when, when they, when they couldn't it. stop they Lord Voldemort. Yeah, that was um, that, but his whole thing was like, oh, they must do better than this. So it was all very, there's no point of him like having this um, sort of sympathetic, you know, hope for the goodness of other people and wanting to sort of like join with that. Like that never happened. It was it more did. like, oh, let me give these guys an opportunity to disappoint me. It's, and it's near did. the end. So we'll hit it in more detail when we get there. But when he talks about how, uh, like, well, I, I, it's not that long of a point to make, so I don't want to jump too far ahead, but he, he tried being a hero for a while. And his line was, they wept tears of gratitude for me. It did not feel like anything in particular. Yeah. It's, like, it's, yeah, My take of, from that little description was more like it was a yet another demonstration of kind of like how weirdly um, like sociopath he was because the whole thing was just an act and kind of like it came across to me as more like sort of a, a confirmation of his like, you know, a, assumption going in that like, okay, these people are worthless and not, not worth my time and saving them was boring and didn't do anything for me. Right. It's like, that, it as like a demonstration of his total, like lack of being able to like relate to other humans. That That's where it's sad is that like this, this is a damaged guy, you know, like I think that, you know, nobody wants to be a psychopath and Coral well, so is. The, the, but that's the thing that like, you don't, I, and so I was wondering if, if we were going to get the thing where like, okay, let me show somebody good, turning into somebody bad, which would sort of be like the Frankenstein story. Um, but we don't ever, and this seems to me like, like we're being shown here, like this was the opportunity in this chapter for Yudkowsky to show us, okay, here is somebody that started out good and went bad. And he's sort of explicitly going, by the way, I'm not doing that here. This guy has never been okay. He's been wrong in the right. head. He's never, the he's never been time. good. He's never been okay. But like, not because like he innately wants to be an asshole. I think that like he's just a he's a broken person. Well, so, but see, like broken almost feels like like oh, there was some potential for him to be a regular guy. He, it's almost like he's being drawn like he's almost like a raw force of just anarchy and evil. Like there was never any humanity here. I feel like he's he's one, died. one like, good just, course of magical there. antidepressants away from being a healthy person. So you say because it doesn't come across to me that way. Like he comes across as like cartoonishly evil, and that not that that is bad with the with the story, it totally works. But that the way my takeaway from this chapter was that we're being sort of affirmatively shown that there was never anything redeeming about Quirrell. Like, Oh, you were entertaining that possibility, but let me now show you that it was never actually there. Cause we don't I ever that, get, well, we get him like toying with the idea of, Oh, let me see. You know, people are saying that this whole hero thing would be good. So let me just go ahead and try that. But his entire reaction to it was always, you know, detached and just, I'm seeing everybody else as an NPC. Right. And that that's like, I think that's the, that's where I call him broken. Like the rest of us, you know, if we, if we saved a city and they were, you know, crying or weeping tears of gratitude and naming their children after us, we would feel great. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. But he, he doesn't have that positive feeling about it. He, I don't think he has like, he just, he doesn't have the ability to have any empathy. Yeah, so like, that, like that's where my, I mean that he's broken and that yeah. he's missing a piece. Yeah. It, I get like my, the difference I see with 
in the term broken, I'm seeing like, oh, like it was whole at one point and it broke. And I guess like for me, the big kind of confirmation was he was never, he has never been okay. And it's, and probably just isn't, it's not even there. It's not like, oh, this is a person that had this and it wasn't there or the person that had the potential to have this and it never developed. It's almost like this turned him into, this is, you know, essentially just a force of evil that was never an actual human. Sure. I and it's just yeah. entirely yeah. lacking in the ability to relate to other humans. Gotcha. Yeah. The word broken implies that he was whole at some point. I yeah. think he was defective off the assembly line. Mm-hmm. Right. So he, he's a defective. And sort of kind of like incapable of ever becoming normal. Like that's sort of my takeaway. It's like we've like he's we've sort of elevated him to a level of like he's the abstract concept of evil. Right. <laughs> Which is a lot pretty consistent with like the original Voldemort. Like he's just like it works as like a storytelling thing. Like we're not we're sort of given permission to not worry about like the realism of, you know, could some person ever turn into this where it's kind of being like, like my take of this was we're kind of being shown like he is this sort of storytelling archetype of bad will of the thing that wants to harm. Yeah. I think Um, that, I mean, this, this, I I imagine that in the possible realm of human mind space is a a character like professor Quirrell. Like it's possible to be a, you know, an unfeeling psychopath who also has goals that, you know, are inherently selfish, but might require like cooperation for other people or something. Right. Yeah. So he, he explains that his whole like grand goal is to stop the muggles from killing everybody, um, which like to him is kind of like an afterthought, like his whole, yeah, his reasoning like isn't because, well, well, it is in that he, he, I think he says that like, he doesn't he doesn't, he's not doing it because he cares about his friends and family in his country. He's doing it because he doesn't want to wander eternal, you know, his eternity yeah. on a dead planet. He still wants, he still wants toys to play with a million years from now. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And that was, and sort of like, yeah, calling it out that way that it was, that it's not because like, Oh, I value humanity. It's like, well, no, I don't want to just be, you know, wandering. And, and later we get a little bit of, he still like has such disdain for regular people that the only way that he thought that it would be worth it would be like, okay, let me make another one of me, which is Harry. And that, you know, he and I, Harry and I can do this like eternal dance of fucking with each other. And that will be fun. Um, yeah. I, like I said, to me, it's just sad. Cause I mean, he, at the end of the day, he's again, he's, he's an asshole. He's a psychopath. He's, he's not uh, an empathetic person but it's sad that he's driven to the point where he's like, I, in his mind, he's like, I'm alone. There's no one to keep me entertained. And like the rest of us, you know, we've all been in boring conversations because everyone who listens to this, this podcast is very smart and enlightened. And yet when you talk to normal people, no, I'm <laughs> who kidding. Wouldn't but, love listening to um, me? But the, uh, like, you know, I don't know. It's like, I, I don't know. I guess maybe I kind of outgrew that mindset where, you know, for a while there was a bit of like that superiority complex maybe, but not much. I, I think I was, always fairly put in my place pretty well by being shot by people who are smarter than me. But like, uh, you know, if, if you were in a situation where you were kind of like intellectually isolated and like no one just seemed, you know, everyone wanted to talk about, you know, sports and uh, whatever random bullshit. And you're like, no, can't we talk about something interesting? That's kind of how Quirrell feels his whole life. And so you, you, you mix that in with the fact that he's an uncaring psychopath. And like, like I said, it's just, he's a, he's a defective person. I wish that there would be a way to like, again, give him a magical course of antidepressants and suddenly he, you know, like in the future of, of muggle technology, I, I anticipate in the next 50 to well, I, probably in the next, I don't know if I had to guess 25 to 75 years, we'll have some sort of antidepressant that like actually fixes people. 
Um, and like, if you're, if that's possible with muggle technology, it seems possible with, with magic. And like, it would, it's just should a be, bummer. Should be more possible with magic. Right, that's my thing. Yeah. So it's just yeah, a bummer yeah. that like they didn't invent this thing when Tom Riddle was 11 and he got to Hogwarts and they gave him a psychoanalysis test and, oh, you're a psychopath here, take this pill and it'll give you compassion. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that I can totally get like that idea, like the sadness of it, like, oh, you are just a completely empty thing. That's um, where like, I'm at, lacking yeah. in the like super important part of what, what it means to be a human. Um, that's yeah, that's think, the line think, that I pulled out like, for later too. Yeah. When you, yeah. when you, when you fall for the like, Oh God, would, you know, you know, really the rest of the world is super disappointing pieces of shit. Not as good as me. Uh, when, like when you find that appeal, <laughs> being tempted by the appeal, I, I totally, so am I, like, it would be awesome to be this like hyper competent and above reproach. Um, and always, always right. Um, but and and having sympathy for his for his lack of humanity as a broken person, I can also understand. But it's the like I think you thoroughly miss the point if you just buy into the temptation, like the like oh this is so awesome to be this way. Let me also you know figure out you know well you know the the whole like oh well he has a point, like he like I've said this a lot like he he has a point often on the facts, but. He's being the kind of person that one should not ever want to be. Um, hmm. And I think, and I think, again, I think this, that's like sort of on purpose. It's like putting those things right next to each other. Like, you know, let me show you a person being completely full of ill will and disdain for humanity while at the same time being technically correct about the specific subject we're talking about in the moment. We put those right next to each other so you can see both the temptation of the, you know, oh, I'm so smart and right, right next to the, but by the way, that makes you a shitty person so that you're forced to look at, look at the choice you're making right there and see what those trade-offs are. Um, so I, th- I, th- and I, so I think that's, and that's sort of like that right there is a big thing that Harry's kind of repeatedly going through, through this story. And so I think that's like a big thing. That's like Harry's little like growth you know, adventure for this story is like working out the the difference between that and how do you like hang on to just like, you know, being a good person without needing to sacrifice, you know, it's a, it's a false choice between like, Oh, let me just play dumb and say all the, the wrong stupid shit in order to try to be a nice person. Like that's a false choice. Um, and that Harry's like figuring out, you know, how do you do both? How do you like do the right thing? Um, you know, take a big picture, logical view at what you're doing without turning into comic book guy. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I think, uh, um, well, well, we'll, we'll keep, we'll keep a, yeah. a pin in well, that. Like, keep that point really like Harry is like, make like Harry's winning that battle. And this is, and this is a lot of like Harry, like having a conversation with Quirrell here, especially here where he's like, why do you do this if it doesn't even make you happy? And Quirrell gives this like very sort of like pompous sounding like, well, happiness is not for us because we're so super important. But like that's the thing, like Harry's figuring that out in a way that like Quirrell's never has. Um, and so that, Yeah, Harry doesn't value happiness above all else, but he values happiness. Where like yeah. Quirrell seems to have completely given up on that as an ambition. Yeah, it's, well, I mean, yeah. Or like for me, it's even like worse than that. It's, he never even had the ability to understand it. Like that's only like he kind of says that about like well happiness is not for us but that wasn't even ever anything that he had antenna to pick up on, 
Right. I think maybe he tried to pick up on it. He's like, well, I hear that being a hero makes you happy. Oh, that didn't work. Well, all right. I think being a nice person is something one ought to try. Right. Eh, didn't work for me. Yeah. Uh, like I said, though, that's to me, that's tragic. Like, it's just a bummer because like, yeah, I can see that. like I said, uh, if he was a whole person, then that would work. Right. Yeah. You might you might, you know, who knows? Like, I don't think we get his childhood here. So we can just kind of assume it's the same as canon where he grew up in a not super happy orphanage and like probably didn't have the best early childhood. And so then he starts whatever Hogwarts becoming a young adult and he's building that on the foundation of being raised in a in bad circumstance. And so like that kind of makes it sound like, oh, you know, if only there was this core of goodness that, you know, could be fostered out of him. But you, you combine all the, you know, the bad upbringing, the, the sad backstory combined with the fact that there actually isn't a core of goodness because he's uh, he's missing yeah, pieces that's the thing. Like, we, a, we never really see the, we never really see uh, that oh, the then you get breaking like a, oh this is a you know a sad you know, story a like potentially good right? person that was then you know damaged and like taken away like we never and yeah that could be true but like you would think it wouldn't be hard to sort of draw that picture if we wanted to have quarrel come across as that kind of character but he sort of does and, and like and it totally works as far as the story he, he's for me this was the uh let's make sure that Quirrell comes across as this entirely inhuman, almost just like, like force of cosmic evil. Like he's the pure form of ill will and not, you know, he doesn't, we're not going to give him some sort of like, you know, backstory that, that sort of justifies any of this behavior. I think justify is different than explain. Yeah. But we don't even get that. Yeah. Like we don't, we don't get the, I mean, cause it would be like the, like, Oh, like what we did have with Snape in the original books was like the the scene of snape being bullied by james potter and Sirius black like we get to see that like oh this is how you make a bitter you know a bitter harsh person that then turns to the dark side is you treat them like shit during this like vulnerable part of their you know development but we kind of never get that like we don't even get a hint that that ever happened we don't we don't have sort of a it's not even sort of obliquely mentioned that like, Oh, he had a hard upbringing. It's just not mentioned at all. No, you're right. I mean, I imagine he doesn't consider that part of his child, you know, part of his backstory relevant or important. He's just talking about like what he's done so far. Right. But let's take it in order. I think, uh, yeah, we gotta, we gotta dive in a little bit, but we'll keep hitting on this point. I think throughout all of it, just cause it's, this is what I like about this whole thing. That's what this chapter is. It was cool. Exactly. And what I like about this, this whole chapter, in addition to getting like kind of the, you know, the fun explanations of everything is that like this Voldemort is much more fleshed out than the one in the the regular books where it's like, yep, he was a sad kid, a sad childhood. So he's going to be evil for the sake of evil. This one, he's, he's evil, but not for evil's sake, just because he just doesn't give a shit. And so like, that's almost more sad than just like the mustache twirling, puppy kicking, like, I don't know, child torturing asshole. He's, he's doing all that stuff, but because he doesn't feel bad about doing it. Yeah, the original Voldemort, we are a little bit given that story of like we get to see this like sort of tiny psychopath of a child and like we do get a bit of a background to sort of explain how, you know, how could somebody turn into this thing, but like we get even so he's both like kind of more three dimensional in this, but given he's three dimensional not by virtue of giving him more of a backstory, we get even less of a backstory for this quarrel, but yeah. he's more sort of, you know, complicatedly um, complicatedly evil. Complicatedly is a very rolling adverb. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like it. It's uh, like I don't know. I think the the canon of Voldemort was just like the the bad guy for the sake of having a bad guy. Yeah, and like this one, uh, 
he's he's a bad guy and you know the story needs a bad guy but he i don't know like i said i never felt really bad for the original voldemort because he was just an asshole and he didn't have any character underneath this one that was kind of of the purpose in the original one that was kind of the purpose was because because it was really more all about harry so voldemort was just taking up this position as like the universe is a hard place to live in right and that you know and then harry's like trying to have to confront what what that's like and like having to grow up too fast as a Voldemort's just there as being this kind of like force of nature of evil without needing explanation. Yeah. That one was more like, uh, well, not even quite like the Joker. Cause he wasn't there, you know, doing evil for, you know, just the sake of watching the world burn. He was there because yeah. people were trying to get in the way of him being immortal. Yeah. And that was his whole end goal. Um, this, this, this Voldemort, you know, his, his being immortal is kind of an end in itself, but also he wants to not be bored. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like the being immortal, like in this, like the, oh, I want to be immortal. To me, it, it comes across as just the, like, it's an expression of just kind of his narcissism that, like, the only concern of a psycho narcissist is going to be the preservation of himself for no large, it's not the preservation of myself in order, because these are the things I want to try to accomplish. Because that's, you know, the, the things I want to accomplish is always a thing other than you but he has no thing other than him. Um, so it's just, you know, yeah, not exactly. dying for the sake of not dying. Right. And so he's like the sad version of somebody who wants to be immortal yeah. because he just, yeah. So like there, there is a happy way to do it. And he's just, yeah. And, and Harry like draws in that sort of like Harry kind of envisioning the entire cosmos a billion years from now with humans everywhere. Like that's Harry's like, look at all the cool shit we can do. Um, and us dying is a stupid impediment to that. Like that's a kind of Harry's and that is a, like a Harry's that's the purpose beyond myself view of that. Um, whereas like Voldemort quarrel doesn't really have any, it's just a, well, I'm the only important thing in the universe. Therefore I should never die. Yeah. Quirrell can't cast a Patronus charm. Yeah. That and like he also like his vision, especially because he comes up with the whole, like the idea of like, Oh, I want to, you know, create a Harry and have him around because I'm the only other not I'm only other, I'm the only thing, you know, worth worrying about. So if I'm going to be entertained for eternity, I need to make another one of me to do it. Like that's kind of like another demonstration is like complete, like lack of investment in the rest of the universe that, you know, he just, he has no belief that, um, that there's anything outside of himself that would be worth interacting with. And, and it's, it's almost worse than that too, because he didn't make another copy of himself, like to have, someone who can understand him, someone to help him achieve his goals. He made it because he's like, this might be fun. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, okay. I can make a worthy adversary. Exactly. It wasn't for the sake of like, Hey, you know, I've, I've, I've walked around the world. I've talked to a lot of people. No one seems to be on my level. No one seems to want to help achieve my ends with me. I should make more me's to do that. It's, it's, it's not even that he's just like, I thought it would be fun to have somebody as smart as me to plot against and to plot against me. Like yeah, you his, can almost his whole picture thing, some his sort whole of, thing was yeah. alleviating boredom, not like achieving some actual goal. Yeah, you can almost see some sort of like, oh, if he were actually God and it was like actually true that you know he's the most powerful and t- and you know and essentially the only worthwhile thing going on in the universe. That like, okay, well, let me just sort of split myself up. This is like a this is a Robert Heinlein quote. Uh, God split himself up into a myriad of parts so that he might have friends. Um, like you could almost see it, but like what that would feel like would be like, okay, let me bust off a piece of myself and like, let go of it and see what it turns into. 
Um, yeah. But like, that's not, he's not down with that. It's like, okay, let me, you know, make another one of me pretty much just like me. And if it does anything that I don't like, I'm going to make sure to like, you know, go kill some people to keep that from happening. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's still like a, an essentially like selfish act. Yeah. And like I said, that, that makes it kind of a bummer, but yeah, let's dive in. So yeah, I, he, he gives Harry a chance to probe him with questions about like, Hey, you might as well fill the time while we're here making this potion, which was the whole lead into this chapter. Right. Yeah. So, uh, his first question he asks, all right, what the fuck happened on the night that you killed my parents? Um, like the, he says, what happened the night of October 31st, 1981? I would like the entire story, please. And, um, he's like, well, I was driving in my Camaro and flock of seagulls was playing on the eight track. <laughs> <laughs> you picture Coral in like bell bottoms with like, you know, a, a right. Gear so he's, he, that would be fun. But alas, it was the bald, <laughs> you know, pale, noseless, red-eyed, right. snake-faced monster. Um, probably not any, in, enjoying an MP3 on the drive or a, a CD on the playover. <laughs> an MP3. Now, he had a snake face at this time. This was the, the height of Voldemort's power, right? Yeah. yeah. Actually, uh, the, snake, the snake face was a pure movie thing. I don't think the snake face was ever part of the OG Voldemort. Uh, I forget his description. His, his, his vision in the movie took over my mental model of him. But anyway, so he says that, uh, you know, I thought you'd ask that. And he says, to begin with, everything I told you about the Horcrux spell is true, as you should realize, since I spoke in Parseltongue. And then I like this. He says, within seconds after you learned the details of the spell, you perceived the central flaw and began pondering how the spell might be improved. Do you think the young Tom Riddle was any different? And Harry shakes his head and he says, well, he was. Um, so walk me through. I I got very confused, like the combination of Sorcerer's Stone and Philosopher's Stone, or Philosopher's Stone and Resurrection Stone, and the varying versions of, you know, making a Horcrux. Because I think even the, like, original, the non-invented by Voldemort version of the Horcrux is, I think it's different than in the original book. So, like, fill me in on the background here. Like, the prior to... Voldemort showing up. How did Horcruxes work? Um, Horcruxes were uh, time machine backups of your hard drive. All right. Then. And so, like, that's beneficial in that not everything is lost, but everything after you made the time machine backup is lost. And it just sits inside whatever the object of the Horcrux is. Exactly. And, and, so, and so, what are like the rules around how one resurrects with that um, kind of Horcrux? I think someone has to interact with the Horcrux and then you take their mind over or, or something. Take them over. And you've taken over the body of the person that. Right. Like that's what happens to Ginny in the chamber of secrets. Um, okay. So right. like mm-hmm. you, you get to, you get to manipulate the host and then I guess you can have the host, whatever, build you a new body, et cetera. It's not clear what the actual plan to get back to being alive would be other than possessing somebody with a Horcrux 1.0. Um, and so was, and then Quirrell's improvement was merely, although it wasn't though, Quirrell's improvement was that they didn't need to come in physical contact with the Horcrux or? No, they still did up until he found the Resurrection Stone. So the uh, the, the 2.0 version, there's the other wrinkle that this has that the canon version didn't, which is the Interdict of, Mer- Interdict of Merlin. Um, so the uh, <laughs> there was a line here too where... Um, I wanted to pull out. He says, uh, the thought of making a better Horcrux and not being content with the spell I'd already learned. This thought did not occur to me until I grasped the stupidity of ordinary people and realized which of their follies I had imitated. Um, (laughs) 
but in the time I learned the but in time I learned the habit that you inherited from me to ask in every instance how it I might know, be I better that, done. Like the arrogance of that statement. I know. Like you're and the so, only one that's been doing this, but clearly you got that from me because I'm awesome and fuck you. That that's where I think he's giving himself too much credit. I mean, it's yeah. not impossible that there's some, you know, neural pattern that he inherited from being a, you know, Voldemort backup. But I think more likely that Harry got the how do I do better mentality from, you know, the 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 philosophy of the enlightenment and rationality, from his, right? Yeah, from from his professor dad. Right, exactly. And just his 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 disposition towards the world. It's like how can how could we improve? I don't think that it was so Quirrell's giving himself credit for every good thing that Harry has. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. And the other thing, like when you said that, cause that hadn't occurred to me, but then my, my thought with that was also like, we don't have really any evidence in this story that that's actually the case with Quirrell. It's not like, Oh, and I did this because, and you got that from me. Like Quirrell hasn't acted that way. Quirrell's not a person that has been like, Oh, let me see what I'm doing wrong and improve upon it. We haven't seen that fucking at all. Other than he sort of like claimed after the fact that that was a thing he did at one point. Um, well, I think you actually see him do it. Other, uh, the only, and the only other thing I could think of was like his, him going like, oh, this whole sciencey thing you've been doing seems to be panning out. So I'm going to read this physics book. So but that is one that, thing yeah. that most wizards don't bother with. And I think that yeah. it, that is an example of him saying, all right, how can I do better? There seems to be power in the muggles that I've discarded. Let's give that a shot. Yeah. He also does like realize that, uh, you know, he, he sees the central flaw of the Horcrux spell, but like d- the idea to like, okay, well, let's do better. That took him years to think of. Yeah. But then, you know, so the idea of let's try and improve on stuff, I think is something that Quirrell has, like, let's do a better job. Yeah, but it's, it. a, it's almost like a, a new thing he kind of almost discovered and is stumbling through and, and not, like, he's not, he's much less better at it than even the average person. Like it's a, I think he's, well, at least he's less, he he's less good at it without Harry that he's starting to pick up. Yeah. Well, and I think he's not, I mean, he picked it up like anytime before he died. A normal person. But I like, he's, uh, to me, like he comes across as like being, he's like so full of arrogance that his ability to like admit fault and learn from it is less than the average person even. And that he's like now yeah. starting to improve enough to catch up with like even how regular people do. Maybe. I, maybe some people would argue giving regular people too much credit or maybe we're not sampling I the regular people, people that much. think that Quirrell's like totally fucking awesome. <laughs> um <laughs> But I wanted to, before I forgot, the central flaw of the original Horcrux was that, um, right. like, A, someone has to come into contact with the physical object, mm-hmm. and that there's no continuity of self, so that you're, like, the memories between when oh, you made the Horcrux. At that and, moment. Exactly. Okay. So, like, if you did a backup every morning, you wouldn't lose that much. But apparently, Kroll's plan was to do one every year, which, you know, beats nothing, but mm. you still lose a whole year's worth of and work. Then you're uh, still, like, the other main thing. And it's whichever Horcrux happened to, like, whichever backup you're restoring from, which isn't necessarily the one you wanted. That's a good point. Yeah. If someone found the one yeah. from five years ago, they've lost five years. Then that's the one that um, came back. Yeah, exactly. And then you of five years ago, wouldn't know where you of one year ago hid your future Horcrux is. So you couldn't go find that and get your you know memories back. Maybe you could track your magic with magic. Who knows? But the other thing was that uh, the interdict of Merlin prevents powerful spells passing through such a device since it's not really alive. And so he says that other other dark wizards have used Horcrux Horcruxes, but they returned their weaker and easily dispatched. Um, so the uh, he says that personalities mix with the victims, and that death is not truly gainsaid; real self is lost. And uh, the so yeah, the, the issues is and that all you don't. Of that was still true of the Horcrux he was trying to make in 1981. No, by that point, I think he had. It was still going to be like, oh, the the new me will always be the 
Right. The current I think, me is always going to be the one that is restored for this kind of Horcrux. I think what he did was like he he made instead of like a single Horcrux that you know was your was your individual backup, he made like a network of backups that can all communicate with each other. Okay. Um, so that way you do you know someone picks up your Horcrux from fifteen years ago. Well, that one is linked with all your other Horcruxes. So like all of your memories are in every Horcrux. Right. So so the Quirrell Horcrux doesn't have the like, oh, you may be working from an old backup problem, but it still has the problem of somebody has to physically touch the thing. And so he kind of fucked himself with the whole pioneer. Right. Thing. Yeah. So that that was – man, could you imagine if that was his only Horcrux? I know. Um, like, uh, it, especially like – and then he can't die. So he just exactly. spend eternity – I, I would not. I mean, I I know that when That's he's reflecting on it, he says close that. To my concept of hell. Same. Yeah. When he's reflecting on it, he says, "At least I had avoided the worst of fates, and that I wasn't dead." And I'm like, I don't know, man. Give yourself two thousand years floating through space, and you'd be wishing you'd hit a fucking star. I um, but yeah, his uh, like yeah. So the the flaw with his that he didn't that he thought he had uh, circumvented with his whatever revised Horcrux was that he thought he could fly around and go possess people. Yeah. Um. He actually gains that power when Harry tells him what the Deathly Hallows like sigil looks like. Yeah. Okay. So this part I didn't follow either. So what was it about that that let him fix that problem? Um, some magic of the Resurrection Stone lets you do that. Oh, it's unclear. Hand wavy something something. Yeah. Like there's something to do. What does he say about like? Um, oh, what was it? Uh, I'll I'll define it if I skim through it, but he says that something about the the Deathly Hallow let him incorporate that into his network that let basically a disembodied version of it fly around. Okay. So, so that's probably that's, like, so that was hand wave because like, I thought I was kept thinking like okay there's something I'm missing here, but but it was just hand wave. That's cool. I think it's hand wavy. Yeah, right. there's it's not clear why at least to me why the the Resurrection Stone would let your disembodied Horcrux spirit fly around, but apparently it does. So um, the the big issue with like his previous version of it was like people would still have to find his Horcruxes. And so I think when he got back, when he, when he, when Quirrell found his, one of his Horcruxes, I think what he first did was he, what he he made a bunch more and put them in easily findable places. Um, But this way he doesn't have to wait. So when he tells Harry, like if you somehow managed to destroy this body, I will not be gone another nine years. I'll be back very quickly. And I'll be very, uh, I'll be very annoyed and vengeful. (laughs) And also like if just because there's a Horcrux and somebody touched it, doesn't mean he like has to take over their body. Probably not. No, but it'd be weird. Why would you pass up the opportunity? Well, well, no, but what he should do is like make the phone on the president's desk in the oval office, a Horcrux. Oh, sure. He doesn't, need to go into any time but you know at any moment he's like only a few minutes away from being the president of the united states now you're thinking like a creative murderous psychopath voldemort i love it so yeah it's not just like oh hide them where people can't find them it's like no do the opposite put them where they're like constantly being interacted with yeah you know the elevator options especially especially if you're gonna make them make hundreds of them then you know you're not worried about like a few of them getting like axed so put them all over the place in close proximity to important people i wonder now I'm curious if uh, like a Horcrux would work on a on a Muggle, or if it needs to be a magical person that you possess. Oh, uh, yeah, because they don't have the gene. That's a, hmm. But of course, I like the president, it's it could magic. just I like I was gonna say, like the oh, president no, could no, just president. like you know be be possessed, be unmagical, but then he would like make a phone call and. I don't know. Assuming that the president of the United States has the same deal as the prime minister of Britain in that they know about magic. 
uh, like just call your magical delegate and be like, Hey, you know, uh, can you pick up the phone real quick? <laughs> yeah. And let, no, that's let what, the, yeah, like if you are, then you become, if you're like, uh, you know, this explains a lot if Voldemort is Trump. Um, but you know, so you do, you, you do go, go in through the oval office phone and you become the president of the United States, but you're at that point, you're, you're just Voldemort and you're not really particularly attached to being the president. Then you just like call up somebody and like somebody you actually give a shit about, and say like, Hey, could you go touch this thing over here for no reason? Don't ask me why. And then you just like move over there. So you could like upgrade once you're like, once you've recovered from the immediate crisis of, Hey, I'm dead. I need to like inhabit a body. Then you can like try to upgrade to something better at that point. Yeah. But the idea of testing on, on a muggle actually sounds worth yeah, doing. So, and it's, it's the kind of thing that I imagine Quirrell didn't even think of or ruled out for magical reasons that we're not privy to. But if he, well, no, I, I, that's what we get at the I, end I imagine chapter, he didn't, I imagine like he didn't think of it. Him. Yeah. yeah, that's what we get at the end is that he was just like, oh, yeah, that might have been a good idea, but yeah, it would have been to the benefit of some other person, and it's just not how I roll. Right. Yeah. Which no, even if you were, it's going to be like all like psycho about it. It could be like, hi, let me totally pretend that this is for your benefit, and if it works, I'm just going to you know put an Avada Kedavra through your brain. <laughs> oh, look, it did work. Goodbye. I also wonder if you're – so if Quirrell's walking around now, Voldemort has a body – if someone interacts with one of his other Horcruxes, does he know about it? Does he know? Does he have the option to move if he needs to, or does he have to like die in order to go? I, I think that I think that the the Horcrux network, um, like the the 2.0 pre the incorporation of the Resurrection Stone, I think did allow him to be aware of the whole network at the same time. Oh yeah, because um, that's like when he's like staring at the stars. That's he's my. They didn't say it outright, but. Oh, I'm like away from the mic because I'm pulling a cool comic book off the bookshelf behind me. Yeah, he's, so like when we're like staring at the stars, that's that he just sort of like temporarily like transferred his perception over to the pioneer. Yeah, so that's, yeah. I think that's what he was doing when he was going zombie was visiting his Horcrux network. I, I pulled away from the mic as I reached the shelf behind me. There was this cool comic book called Demon, which is kind of like the same uh, same concept. Anytime the guy dies, he like drops into the body of the nearest other person. That's kind of cool. Uh, but then he like totally uh nerd wise like he just starts to try to like learn what the rules of how it works and so he starts munchkinning and all it sounds like you know what the obvious solution like the obvious path to victory there would be is to break into the white house and be killed trying to attack the president and be as close to the president as possible when you die right i think that literally happens in the book perfect (laughs) very very similar i'm almost positive the president is involved in the story in fact even if you don't get all the way to the president as long as you're killed by a secret service agent then you just wait till you know the next time you can get near the president and then shoot yourself in the head and then take over the president right oh yeah and there's a lot of like oh let me kill myself in order to like move along oh yeah oh yeah that's definitely right yeah so and it's kind of charming in that it's drawn a lot like dilbert that's kind of not at all taking itself seriously i that almost bums me out i wish that it was you know Fun and creepy, like a uh, like preacher or something, right? Like it's a the, little the, bit of both. The heavy art, all right. But yeah, well, it's, it's very uh, visually simplistic. Yeah, so that's the Horcrux stuff. Um, it is a little involved, but I think that's what's going on there. Yeah. So, well, I it's okay for that part to be a little involved because it is kind of like it's the central plot to the whole damn book. So, right, and that's where, like, I think he even says that, like, uh, you know, Quarrel has like this exalted you know, expression on his face where he's just, uh, or what was it? Um, yeah, there's a look of exultation in the man's eyes that Harry had never seen before. And he's like standing there all triumphant. And he's like, yes, I'm truly immortal now. And, uh, yeah, exactly. So he's like, this is his, his great creation. 
Um, and so really this whole thing of like trying to get the philosopher's stone is, is almost this, like, he's just sort of like trying to pimp his ride for immortality. Like he's already got the immortality thing nailed. He just wants like a better version of it. Yeah. Why not have it all the have, power? It doesn't have to hop from body to body and he can kind of turn himself because as I was thinking about that too, like he could just sort of turn himself into some like Cthulhu looking mega demon that's unkillable. Like that's just a regular transfiguration spell and then just like make it permanent until he then wants to be something else and then make that permanent too. So he could just make himself into a completely, not only just sort of like, okay, turn yourself back into a, you know, smoking hot 25 year old perpetually, but like, and also just make yourself into whatever kind of invincible thing you want. That would be something. This again puts me back in mind of Ozymandias from Watchmen. You just turn yourself into the giant squid and attack New York City. Exactly. <laughs> Especially uh, if he's just like got it on himself, you know, at any moment, he could just like decide what he feels like being at that moment because he no longer has to worry about all of that like McGonagall, oh my God, rules about what would happen if. It's like, right. No, we're all cool. Yeah, and I think that's like that's another fun thing that made this universe of magic a lot more fun than the canon one is that like magic is still basically arbitrarily powerful but it's got hard mm-hmm. limits mm-hmm. and the limits like limitless magic is is like it it, it makes it, it makes for a fun story if the magic isn't the central part of the story mm-hmm. but like so, so long as the magic actually fucking matters um, like harry potter would have been just a fine story if no one had magic right like it would have been a little less whimsical and uh, exciting or whatever, but like it would have been, you could have done basically the same story. Um, in this one, you actually need the uh, yeah. the magic. Involved, well, that's it. But he's so. sort of like like the philosopher's stone. The philosopher's stone like gets him into like the like then negating all of those rules, and so if he wants to, he could turn turn himself into some kind of like planet swallowing Galactus. Like he could do whatever. That's a good point. Because we're like when. He could do um, basically, and then like, and because it sort of like makes any of them permanent. Even if there was some sort of like, okay, no, you can't turn like a grain of sand into you know Mount Everest. Uh, he could just upgrade a couple times because he's making a point. Okay, but I can turn a grain of sand into a rock. I could turn the rock into a mountain. Exactly. And then, then that that mountain becomes Galactus, and I eat the Earth because I was hungry. <laughs> he could just eat. He can just eat Mars as a demonstration of power. Yeah. So yeah, it, it totally is the like, oh, I am now like the supreme ruler of the universe. That's a good point. It's when Harry, you know, asks him what's the stone do, and it's like, oh, okay, all it does is make transfiguration permanent. That you know, it doesn't give you what more you magic necessarily or whatever. <laughs> but but yeah, exactly. That is that, that is enough. still a lot. It didn't occur to me that yeah, you could <laughs> make yourself enough. into a planet sized, you know, uh whatever, Galactus monster. Yeah. Um yeah. I like there's this- wonder why uh, why did Baba Yaga never do that? Uh, good question. I, I think Yaga, which, a little subplot that I totally dug was a cool little little sub story there. Oh, you know, I forgot to mention. Uh, I I forgot to dig up what the what the two things were. Um, so at the before this chapter came out, it said like if you have any lingering thoughts on what the defense professor are, you know, make your bets now or forever hold your peace. Was the author's note. Um, I lost twenty five dollars in bets on the HPMOR subreddit. Um, I think that. One of my predictions was that Quirrell was Baba Yaga, um, and that was, in some way maybe was Baba Yaga even a. I thought Baba Yaga. We didn't even hear about Baba, Baba Yaga until this chapter, did we? No, he she'd been name dropped at least twice. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so, like, there was. I think he mentions it during his opening speech, and then he mentions it again when he's talking to Harry or Hermione's spew group outside of Dumbledore's office. Um, so like the the name had been floated. It's like okay, well, there's no way this is just coming up out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and I forget what the other bet was. One was for fifteen bucks. One was for ten. 
And I forget what my other bet was. I'll have to double check. I should have had that ready and I forgot. But uh, there's this fun beat here I wanted to pull out where Harry says, as one of my questions, you said you'd answer, I'd, I'd, or I ask how to cast that spell. Denied. <laughs> Denied, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, this one, then we get like more of the breakdown. There's still physical anchors for the immortality. Um, and he says, yep, good on you uh, to figure that out. But for all the good, it does you. Um, so then this is where Harry realizes like, oh yeah, back when you asked me after the Dementor, um, you know, where would you hide something? Cause he had taught, he had thrown out the idea of tossing the Dementor into the, into a volcano or something. Yeah. And so Quirrell says, if you had to hide something where no one would find it, where would you hide it? And he immediately lists off like the five elements, yeah, what, you know, one in space, one at, yeah, exactly. And so he's like, oh shit, these are going to be really hard to find. And then he asks him, uh, would destroying all of those kill you? And he's like, why do you ask? Or do you, do you suspect the answer is no? He says, your suspicion is right. Destroying those five would not render me mortal. And then yeah, I like this. Because they're all like equal, right? Like any one of them is enough. Well, so Harry was wondering if there were only five. Oh. And so he oh, said, okay. Then we get to like, no, there's, there's so many. I've lost track. Exactly. He says, how many, how many anchors did you make? And he says, I would not ordinarily say, but it's clear you've already guessed. The answer is, I do not know. Stopped counting somewhere around 107. Just made a habit of it every, each time I murdered somebody in private. That's just a good IT best practice. but the the bad news was he says over 100 murders in private before he'd even bothered to stop counting and this is where he learns too that the new version still requires a human death and he explains that like the original like it takes the magical burst from killing somebody to whatever boot up this backup so um that's the thing like once he got to the point where he's got like got so many of them floating around he should have like then been sprinkling it around to like okay this one's gonna be hidden very well just in case but yeah let me just like leave a few lying around on the street yeah i wonder like he says when he he came back exactly i think he says when he came back he made he made some any easier to find places but i wonder how easy those were to find um i like the idea yeah uh, yeah i don't know Um, but yeah, he doesn't like, once he's got that many, he doesn't need to be as careful anymore because there's just no way anybody's going to destroy all of them. So I mean, then, how are they yeah, going to get to doesn't have to be careful. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, he's, you know, he's covered on that end. So then, yeah, it, it does just have to be more about, well, I guess, so he didn't know until Harry that he was like limited by, but yeah, once he knew that, like once he came back and he started making more of them, then I imagine he was just like, you know, he's just like the very first day went out and killed like 20 people one at a time and then just like started dropping them on the street. That's what, like, yeah. Okay, well, he's like, all right, like that problem's solved. Yeah. I like I it. Don't worry about that one again. It's perfect. Yeah. I think that, I think that is probably yeah, puts more or less what happened. Yeah. It puts one in like Piccadilly circus. Oh yeah. This it is, is the, the statue in the middle of Piccadilly circus. There you go. This, this is the one that I like too, where he says, so you really are a disembodied spirit possessing queerness squirrel. And then he's answering a partial tongue, but I'm not going to read it that way. He says, yes, I shall return swiftly if this body is killed. We'll be greatly annoyed and vengeful. <laughs> <laughs> greatly annoyed. And vengeful. Don't make me angry, Mr. Potter. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. I just like how he says, I'll be annoyed and vengeful. I think that's just a funny <laughs> way to put it. Like, it's not often that someone will say in real life, like, this will make me vengeful. <laughs> um, <laughs> vengeful. Uh, yeah, so, right when you fucked with me in the game last night, I said salty. I was salty. I wasn't vengeful. Oh yeah, we played Risk last night, and because you had declared in advance you you were going to try and fuck with me, my first rule was just to wipe you off the board. Or my first move was to wipe out your whole yeah base. Yeah, yeah, and it was great. Could, yeah, I didn't. Then I had to respawn, and yeah, it was salty, salty. And and what did we learn from this? We fuck with each other. Eniosh wins. Right. We all need to team up to stop Eniosh. 
He's he's won what five of the fourteen games. Uh, yeah, he's out in front again. I think he ended yeah. up tied. We need to knock him out. All right, we're coming for you next week, Inyash. So uh, this is where um, Harry asks, like, okay, cool. So I get all that. So on October thirty first, you tried to turn the baby Harry Potter into a Horcrux, and he says he did it deliberately because he told Lily Potter that you know, fine, uh, accept the bargain yourself to die and the child to live. Now drop your wand so I can murder you. And and then what says, was so, his? Was it only because of the prophecy that he wanted? Did he have a specific motivation around? Because he hadn't up to that point turned a person into a Horcrux, right? Right. So it was because of the prophecy. Was it, only, it was only because of the prophecy because he let wanted to like okay let me see if i can just like make it work to my advantage it wasn't that he had some like new aha about what would it mean if i made a person into a horcrux no i think it it gave him the idea and so he says you know why did you do that and he says trelawney's prophecy and there's this awesome music in the audiobook version um and he says that uh <laughs> um he says, I was fascinated by the prophecy's assertion that someone would be my equal because it might mean that someone could hold up the other end of an intelligent conversation. <laughs> and uh, he says, after 50 years of being surrounded by gibbering stupidity, I no longer cared whether my reaction might be considered a literary cliche. I was not about to pass up the opportunity without thinking about it first. And then you see, I had a clever idea. It occurred <laughs> to me how I might fulfill the prophecy in my own way to my own benefit. So the idea was like, the prophecy said you should mark someone as your equal and destroy all but remnant of them. And he's like, well, I can do that and come out on top. Um, that was his clever idea. So, you know, like the, I'm not and sure. Was it, just, was it just obliviates was how he just sort of erased the original Harry Potter? I don't was think he bothered. Like, the kid was one year old, right? Like how many memories does a one year old have? So he just sort of like implanted all of his new stuff into it. Yeah. I think that he just overwrote the, whatever and you know this is the the magic involved right like he overwrote the the memories and personality he he yeah he and that he was deleted, just like he deleted the he deleted the harry hard drive like rather than like delete the harry hard drive he just booted up a new one on top of it exactly yeah but that and that wasn't anything special about like his new horcruxy thing that he just did that with like conventional legimolency fuckery right? no i think he did he made him he made him a horcrux uh, but the but the memory trend like the erasing harry and and replacing him with a Voldemort was that part of the Horcrux spell or was that just like the thing he did in like to, you know, pave the way for the Horcrux spell? I think that's what happens when you Horcrux something is you oh, okay. put your, your mind back up on it. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I guess. And so All usually right. your, your mind back up is on some trinket or a locket or a rock or something. But and just because there was no Harry there. That's what. I mean, I imagine if you tried to Horcrux a fully fledged drive. adult, there'd be some weird conflict. Right. Yeah. But doing it to a baby, uh, because there's not much there to overwrite. Um, maybe it would have made sense to obliviate at first, but like, I don't think babies form. Well, I guess there's nothing, so. nothing to, nothing to obliviate. Yeah. We're just truly in memory world. So, uh, apparently what happened was when you made, when he made another person, his Horcrux, then like they had this weird magical resonance and that's what blew up Harry, or that's what blew up Voldemort. So. Yeah, and uh, that wasn't, that wasn't because of like, Oh, that would have happened with anybody that was specifically. Oh no, it was. So because there wasn't anything special about Harry in terms of that whole resonance thing. Not until he made him a Horcrux. Not until he made him a Horcrux. And so I guess what we're saying is that he would have had the same, if he had done that to anybody, the same thing would have happened. I think so. Okay. So you basically um, can't, you can't make a person into a Horcrux. Right. Cause it's not sets up safely. A resonance, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and this was actually a fun little beat in uh, one of the Harry Potter books. Like, 
Neville also fit the description for parents thrice defied and born at the oh, end of yeah. July. Um, and it just happens to be that Voldemort selected Harry and like, there's no reason it couldn't have been Neville. Yeah. Um, I think in this, like if he had done this to any random kid, it would have done the same thing. So, or any random baby. Uh, is there some, uh, is there some fan fiction version where Neville is the boy who lived? That'd be kind of a cool story. I'm hundred percent sure there is yeah. without even having to look just by, just by virtue of the, uh, brute force algorithm. Exactly. Um, so the, yeah, Voldemort explodes. And then rather than being able to float around like he thought he was, or thought he'd be able to, he was trapped to his Horcruxes. And this is where he says, your instinct is correct, boy. This would not be a good time to laugh. <laughs> I, know. I like that because it was so, like, he spends so much time like pretending he doesn't, well, no, I don't not even pretending just does not give a shit about the opinion of anybody else. But like, apparently that would be the one thing that, yeah, I don't laugh right now. Cause I'm pissed off about it. Yeah. So he spends nine years and four months basically just looking at the stars the whole time and reflecting on how dumb he was and all the, you know, the mistakes he'd made. Um, he says, yeah, at least I was immortal. The worst of all fates had been averted. My great creation had done that much. I had little left, I had little left to hope for and little left to fear. I decided that I would not go insane since there seemed to be no advantage in it. I wonder how <laughs> long decided. that decision would hold out. That's the thing we get to do. Uh, so he gazes at the stars and just reflects on his own errors and, um, now, this is where again stuck only being in the pioneer. Like he, that was just like the most contemplative place for him to hang out, but he was able to be switching around in his different Horcruxes all that time. Yeah, presumably, yeah. but uh, you know, the Even rest like are random pebbles or yeah, exactly. Horkied in the bottom of the ocean, not much yeah. to look at. So, um, hello fish. Right. <laughs> so, uh, I knew that if I won free, I would be more powerful by far than my pre- in my previous life, but I mostly did not expect that to happen. And then he says, nine years and four months after that night, a wandering adventurer named Quirinus Quirrell won past the protections guarding one of my earliest horcruxes. And the rest you know. And now, boy, you may say what we both know boy. you were thinking. <laughs> um, doesn't feel like a very smart thing to say. Indeed, it is not a clever thing to say, say to me, not even a little, not in the slightest, but I know you are thinking it and you'll go on thinking it and I will know and you, I will go on knowing that until you speak, until you say it. So speak. And it's not actually until I say this out loud that it reminds he me. He's a lot touchier in this scene. He is. He's annoyed. But it, this it's not until I just read this out loud that this reminds me, this is exactly what happened when Hermione uh, like ruined Harry's whole like six month plan of testing magic way back in like chapter 20 something where she's she's behind him all smugly like and he says that she wasn't laughing but he could feel her intent to laugh like <laughs> intent to laugh, so yeah. he's like just just say it she's like no i shouldn't say it it wouldn't yeah. be nice and he's like Fucking no exactly um uh, this this is the the same thing but yeah he says that hey you know there's uh this this uh you know spell that's unblockable and unstoppable and works you know every single time and he's yes thank you mr potter that that thought occurred to me several <laughs> times over the next nine years and he says i made that principle the centerpiece of my battle magic curriculum after i learned its centrality the hard way that was not the first rule in the young younger tom riddle's list and, and so, so make sure i got it right like we are saying that like the original story about like oh he just like it backfired because he cast the avada kedavra what we're saying is if he had been smart enough to just straight up cast avada kedavra at harry it totally would have worked probably yeah but it was the whole horcruxy thing that fucked him and yeah, it's hard to see how it wouldn't. I think the the reason he didn't just do that was because he thought the prophecy might have some weird fuckery involved. So he's like, all right, well, I'll try and actually fulfill the terms of the prophecy rather than avert it. Uh, well, and the original story was that the, the power of love yeah. between Lily Potter and Harry. And yeah. 
And that was always shaky because, you know, it's, the, it's everyone's first thought. It's like, no, no one else had ever, like, thrown themselves in front of a bullet in the wizarding history. Come on. Exactly. So, yeah, through the power of love. like that song. Uh, I was trying to block that from my memory. Thanks. It's too late. I remember it from the uh, beginning of Back to the Future. Is it? Oh, Lord. It's now, it's, now it's in your head forever. Yeah. Generally speaking, the 80s was pretty cool, but only generally. You didn't like Back to the Future? Oh, yeah. Back to the Future. Huey Lewis, not so much. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. the Where were we? Let's go back to the notes, not just read the whole chapter verbatim. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so, my next bit in the notes was when we get to the backstory around Flamel and Baba Yaga. Oh, yeah. So, that was his second question. He asks about, um, like, about the Philosopher's Stone. Does it do anything besides making transfiguration permanent? Is it possible to make more stones? And why is that problem hard? And so I like the, this is, you know, some of the, like we we were talking about earlier, like is Quirrell at all rational or is he just kind of like this monster psychopath? This is some fairly good deductive Sherlockian reasoning where like for the most part before we didn't have a lot of evidence other than like, you know, this smells like a smart thing. So he's probably a smart person. Like, you know, it passes the sniff test, but this is, This is some good reasoning here. He says that um, uh, basically he lists all the things that magic can do as far as like making substances and stuff and that none of it can, you know, just make gold from thin air. And he says, if Merlin himself could do it, history does not record it. So the stone we can guess even before research must be a very old thing. Indeed. In contrast, Nicholas Hamel has only been known to the world for a mere six centuries. Um, So, we get that there that this thing must be some ancient artifact of you know mm-hmm. the old days of magic when you could do completely whatever the fuck you wanted, um, and then he comes up with this nice you know Harry uh, asks him at the end of it is like is all that true and he's like none of it is known to me fa- known to me mm-hmm. to be false which is not the same thing as is this true talk to my lawyers he said exactly but he says that like you know the general outline is I think basically the way it went down um, obviously the specifics I had to invent for the story but. Um, I really like this whole backstory of like Baba Yaga and Paranormal made me totally wish like, Oh, this is a story I would like to read. I bet there's a fan fiction of it. Yeah. That's, Complete uh, with yeah. all the sort Baba Yaga like, came across as this sort of like Highlander thing. Like, Oh, she's like alive forever until like Paranormal takes her out. And, uh, Paranel sounds like a totally like psychopath. So yeah, there's all like really cool looking characters. Right. And like, yeah, Paranel's been like Nicholas Flamel was just like some, like made up character on the part of Paranel and people. And so, yeah, and we're also, so Paranel was a student. So it was like a student that was like precociously evil enough to go murder a, uh, uh, professor, not just a professor, but the one that she believed held the stone of permanency. Yes. So, so. And yeah, she, like, really was, she was like, you know, the previous version of like psycho Tom Riddle. This is exactly like what Tom Riddle would have done. Same cool right. Exactly. All the, all the same and, uh, characteristics of a, Brilliant psycho. The other fun thing is that it gives some actual interesting backstory to the Goblet of Fire. Like in the canon version, it's basically like one of those raffle balls where, you know, everyone puts in like their their thing and they they swirl it around and pull out a name. Like that's super boring. Why do you need a fucking magic goblet to do that? They could use literally any hat, right? Mm-hmm. So in this, the Goblet of Fire, um, what is it? It's like it binds everybody to like, not necessarily a promise, but it binds them to like an oath they make. When they yeah, it, it was almost like a machine for generating unbreakable vows. Is kind of how it. Yeah, I think so. Um, which is kind of cool, right? Yeah. 
like I, I don't know i it just adds some depth to like this artifact yeah. that otherwise is completely fucking pointless yeah uh the like i said i i they could have used the the hats of the three headmasters of the schools because there's only supposed to be you know three from each or one from each school mm-hmm. during the tribal tournament why use this awesome magical artifact that gives out a piece of paper. It's like, no, we've, we've got those. They're called hats. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yes. the, the goblet, it says that, uh, basically, yeah. Purnell has said, Hey, uh, why don't you, uh, bring that cool stone you have to, uh, you know, come have awesome mystique sex with me all night. And, uh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I, I, was, was into it. So then it, he says, because they were all rather old fashioned in those days. Um, the, uh, the, the goblet counts as that as took her virginity right and shedding of Purnell's blood so um she was tricked into being forsworn and the goblet rendered her defenseless i'm not sure what that means like did it make it so she can't use magic did it uh i have no yeah, idea was, yeah made her attackable in the sense that like before this you know they since they aren't allowed to hurt you know the yeah, yeah it's not, it's not like Paranel was like bound to any promise she had made to the goblets. So, yeah. No, I think she was. Every student and faculty, including Bobby oh, okay, put their yeah. So they, yeah, so then it just like broke the contract, and then she right. Like, so I think that the trick was like you know, uh, Purnell couldn't just sneak up on Bobby Yaga and shoot her in the face in the middle of the night. It had to be some kind of trick that would allow this to happen in a way that like violated the terms of the contract. But I, I don't think you can consciously violate the contract. I think is the thing. So it had to be a trick. Um, so yeah, the alchemical recipe, alchemical recipe in the book is a fake. And, uh, yeah, I like how there are like multiple, like, uh, as flannel, she's like spinning tales of bullshit in order to misdirect people. And then that's also how Voldemort tricked her into, uh, putting the stone into, uh, Hogwarts because he made it seem like he was going to be able to find it. So hiding it is pointless. So you better just put it somewhere obvious, but well-guarded. Exactly. Um, still not clear to me why Dumbledore wouldn't just carry it in his pocket, but whatever. Mm-hmm. I, like, I, I like the idea that like this little sort of like unfleshed out backstory of like, Oh, and then this is like, there used to be balance in the force between the dark and the light sides. And they were able to cooperate in order to advance wizarding, blah, blah, blah. But then, ah, now it's all fucked up. And now like every bad thing that's happened in the last 600 years is because of this bitch parallel. <laughs> um, well, well, oh, so I guess now that I'm saying that, so it sounds like, so Quirrell knows that Flamel is Paranel and even knows what the fuck a Paranel is, but it sounds like Dumbledore doesn't because Dumbledore thinks he's guarding it on behalf of Nicholas Flamel for good reasons. Right. And so Dumbledore is like not in the know. And Paranel is supposed to be Nicholas Flamel's wife and the two of them have even appeared oh, in public. Right. He says oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, I thought that she just sort of like got raptured up to heaven, but no, she can pretended to still be alive, but she's just both of them. Right. And so he says this can this can be achieved through any obvious number of means. And it's I, like a, it's just a time turner trick. Exactly, that's, that's the easy version. You know, honestly, that didn't occur to me until this read through. I think previously I was thinking, oh, you would just you know turn somebody else into looking like Paranel or Nicholas Flamel and have them go we to probably do with that you. sometimes too, right? But then that would also kind of like unveil the secret of the stone to somebody, so you'd have to like kill that person afterwards. So yeah, time turner fuckery just seems the easiest way to do it. And I'm glad that you jumped on it immediately, and it took me years. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so apparently like Paranel hasn't just been playing the dark side of the forest this whole time. She's just been kind of like biding her time and staying alive. Like she, she raised up Dumbledore to fight Grindelwald when Grindelwald was apparently going to be a threat. And she raised him up further when Voldemort was, was rising to power. Um, well, yeah, and she's like, and this wasn't like building up to something. This was just like 
how she was planning on rolling through the rest of eternity was just kind of lay low and be immortal. Exactly. Maybe occasionally become somebody different and yada, yada. And take, and take public unbreakable vows to not be coerced by any means into relinquishing the stone. So like, and so was, uh, was she imitating a real Nicholas Flamel or was there never a Nicholas Flamel? Uh, your guess is as good as mine. Flamel. Um, yeah, it could be either way, right? There could have been an actual Nicholas Flamel that she established. Yeah. Apparently not important. Either way works. Um, so let's see. Yeah, I mean, uh, so yeah, Quirrell tricks Paranel into giving it to Dumbledore. Um, oh yeah, and then we get to like we get a lot of this like towards the end. It's just like us like you know filling on all the blank spots on the bits of plot that uh, we haven't resolved. So uh, Harry asks Quirrell, um, "Well, why did you kill Hermione?" And I was surprised. Were you surprised by this? I was surprised by the answer because it, in Quirrell's head, it seemed like the whole well because. Hermione was too important to you and like trying to, you know, she was going to make, it was going to be too hard to turn you to the dark side if you still had like a decent person in your head. So I needed to take her out. Like that is apparently not at all. Quirrell was like, that so doesn't compute in Quirrell's head. He wasn't even worried about it. It was just that there was some sort of like concrete political leverage that the Hermione Draco thing was going to give the Malfoys over, um, over Harry. And he didn't want that political complication lying around. I think it's a little column A, a little column B. Like, so the reason that he tried to get her sent to Azkaban with the whole, like, you know, she tried to kill Draco thing was because he thought that that might uh, improve her disposition a bit and make him, make her, yeah, less of a quote, bad influence on Harry. Um, So then when that didn't work, he's like, fuck it, then I'll just kill her. Um, He doesn't, he says that it was because the leverage about the Malfoys and stuff, but I, part part of me thinks it's because he he was also annoyed. but he doesn't say that. Uh, I think maybe there's I another great bit here too that I forgot. Yeah. yeah, I think that. Uh, but I mean, that's that's also a sufficient yeah, yeah. reason, right? Sense. But yeah. I think that yeah, part of it is like, all right, my first plan to get her off the game board didn't work, so I'm going to just fucking kill her because you know I don't. And now I'm done being clever about it. Let's just you know end this bitch. Yeah, and I like how he game. sort of like rehashed that, like reminded us of that super creepy scene of him just like constantly like going. Uh, Groundhog's Day with Hermione like okay that one didn't work let me try let me erase her memory and try the exact same scene over again but slightly different until I'm able, able to manipulate her into doing what I want that's so cool, that cool I mean, and, and that what also then Quirrell's like you know but I tried like a gajillion times to try to get her to turn on you and she never would you know stupid silly moral fiber thing and Harry's like you don't get to like make fun of her morals when it fucking worked on you so yeah that's awesome Hermione's a fucking badass I forgot to mention, so the beginning of this opens up with his third question. He says, what is the truth behind this entire school year? All the plots you ran, all the plots you built <laughs> That's a cool line. And then his, well, let's see. It's the most surprising shocking- would be that Quirrell <laughs> like, turns out to be Voldemort. Yeah, I forgot to put that in the notes, but that's one of my favorite lines. Um, that would have been, it, that, that was kind of a spoiler. <laughs> actually, like, if I'm like flipping ahead, like, oh shit. And he says, well, obviously. Um, he's like, well, then where do you want me to start? And that's where he says, why did you kill Hermione? So let's see. I think I mentioned, too, that the other reason that he tried to send Hermione to Azkaban was that it would improve his her disposition and stop being a, a quote, bad influence on him. And he says, yes, I thought you might serve as your Bellatrix. Um, I know. And then we did get a bit of like, it, almost, it was kind of interesting, uh, almost like, at least trying to tone down the level of evil Quirrell would be because we got a little backstory of, of that where Quirrell's like, you know, she was basically a broken person when I found her. 
So it's almost kind of a level of, you know, I wouldn't do that to even her. Like I wouldn't do, you know, turning somebody into like other people's sex slave isn't, uh, you know, not my jam. Right. And that was actually a nice thing that Harry points out was, uh, um, oh yeah. So we, he, he asks about what he did to Hermione and then, um, then he says that he felt kind of obligated to ask, oh, actually, no, before we got to that, um, there was the, uh, the fun little bit where, uh, why did the ward show the defense professor as having killed Hermione? And, oh yeah, because yeah. So that, that whole, like, oh, everything inside the circle is the professor. Right. And it, it I think like, I shot down my theory that like, oh, Quirrell's able to just like, you know, have an out of body experience and, you know, control other people. Well, he, he can now, which is kind of fun because you, you, you were, you were, you were right that he probably could have done that, but that's how, that's not how he did it. Um, oh, I guess it is like how, so it is just as long as you're like not so strong willed to keep him from doing it, he can just kind of jump randomly from person to person. Yeah. He doesn't have to like die. You know, no, in fact, like- he, he says that I think when they're in the last chapter, um, He's like, you know, there could be a trap to have like a Dementor come out and try and kill you. And he's like, well, then I would just abandon this body. I think he can just jump out whenever he wants. Oh, interesting. And then and, I wonder, could he like, and then, but I guess that would be weird because if he jumped out, does that mean like Quirinus Coral goes back to being Quirinus Coral? Presumably. Except then he's like, what the fuck has been going on? Yeah. I'm not sure, you know, how uh, awake and yeah, you're inside like, yeah, Quirinus are you Coral in, like, is. sleep mode that whole time? How does that work? Hmm. Not covered. Yeah. There's the, uh, um, the kind of fridge horror idea of like Quirrell being inside and like just not able to do anything the whole time. Oh yeah. Which because oh, this is a whole evil ritual, I'm assuming is exactly what's going on, which is <laughs> very sad. Um, I guess so. Cause like, it's not like, Oh, and then the body would die if I abandoned it. it like he doesn't say that. Although I guess he doesn't not say that, but that said too, the body is like kind of wasting away. Um, Harry remarked, I think in the last chapter. Yeah. So has that been bullshit? This, I guess that's kind of still up in the air. Is the whole like, oh, he's dying. Has that just been an act? Or do we? I still- think the whole dying thing has been an act the entire year, and yet, like, the body is actually wasting. But that does that doesn't seem to be slowing Voldemort down. Okay. Well, like, yeah, here so he is. But so, but it's not like the whole. What I was wondering is like, is the whole zombie thing purely theater, or is he like? Is he actually getting physically weaker? I think it's been all theater. I don't think we get confirmation, but I think it's just been a long con the whole year. Um, like, you know, I'll be acting like I'm dying all year and have all these so mysterious symptoms. That make it- is there anything at all physically wrong with him? Uh, like he, Harry says that it, like his eyes look sunken. He looks kind of thin and pale. Like his, the body is like the whatever. Well, that the, can be an act. Well, I suppose, but. Like, since you can't transfigure yourself safely, I'm assuming that, oh. like, his... Oh, like, that, he has, that he really has physically changed, so that's... Yeah, Quirrell's meat suit is actually wasting away, but that's not really a problem for Voldemort. I'm assuming he can pilot this... Yeah, he's not worried you know, about it. This, 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 uh, this meat suit for as long as he wants, and then when it when it stops so working, are, he just jumps ship. But we are kind of saying that, like, the act of him taking over another body is something that, like, comes at a cost to the body. Right. Because it seems like it's, like the body of Quirrell is doing worse than it would have if Voldemort hadn't taken it over. That's my reading too. Yeah. Which I guess would explain one reason to want the stone, right? So you can like stop that from happening. Um, at the very least it's inconvenient to have to keep changing hosts. Yeah. Uh, 
or wait, changing, um, what do you call it? the host? Yeah. Wait, yeah. Host. Yeah. If you're like a parasite, then it's your host. Yeah. I, for some reason I had it backwards in my head. Um, all right. Oh, that reminds me. So this is where, uh, um, he asks him or Quirrell asks Harry, he's like, Oh yeah, that reminds me like what gave me away at the end? Like what made this, uh, <laughs> you know, how did you, how did you figure out it was me? And, and uh, he was just like, cause it was just too much weird shit happening all at the same time. Right. And, and Quirrell's like, well, that was supp- too much weird shit is supposed to make you think of Dumbledore. <laughs> and he's like, like yeah, that. but then it didn't quite make sense about how you would be there. And like everyone showing up at the same time, just it all felt so weird. And because he was analyzing the situation as too weird, then he noticed that the note to himself wasn't really from himself. And that gave it away completely. Um, yeah. And if it was going to be a fake, then it was fake in a way that only Quirrell would have faked. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so then he says, then uh, we get the super interesting shoe drop around the Marauders map. Yes. Uh, which, yeah, that could, because yeah, we do know enough. I like, it was like only this one very, very short scene with Dumbledore taking the map from the Weasley twins and him just saying like, okay, show me Tom Riddle. We get nothing more. And that like, we never come back to that other than we know that, uh, the Weasley twins have been mind fucked since then. Um, I, unless I missed it, I don't think we have any explanation of how it is that Quirrell now has it. Do we, or do we have some kind of explanation? Uh, it, Harry guesses that he like obliviated, he took it from the Weasleys because Dumbledore gave it back to them. Like he said he would, and then obliviated yeah. them. And but that's all kind of off camera. We don't even have any kind of independent confirmation that Dumbledore ever gave it back. No, that's, we do. It's right here where, uh, he says that, um, uh, Dumbledore assumed that uh, you checked in on the Weasleys, found their map, and took it, and then obliviated them. And he says Dumbledore is correct. So um, Dumbledore he, apparently but, but, did return the map to them. Yeah, that's right. We don't ever that, that wasn't ever like said that like oh because because as far as we knew from what we'd seen, he was like, okay, guys, I need the map. Go fuck off. It's important for Hermione, so go away. Um, and then we got no further indication of how it advanced from there, other than us having to like whatever we can infer here by the fact that Quirrell has it. Exactly. Yeah. So this is where we get confirmation that apparently Dumbledore did just obligingly return it to yeah. uh, the Weasleys, which is very nice of him, but uh, turned out to be a, a foolish, foolish idea. Um, and then like the big one. So uh, the big shoe drop is we realize that the the map it does get super confused, but it calls both Quirrell and Harry Tom Riddle on the map. Um, and so not said at all, but then that's what we are need to be wondering about here is that has to be then what actually made me think back. So that would have to be what Dumbledore saw when he said, Hey, show me Tom Riddle. But I don't remember what was going on specifically in the plot at that moment was Harry at Hogwarts was Quirrell at Hogwarts in the moment that Dumbledore did that. So what would he have seen when he said, show me Tom Riddle? Good question. Uh, So Quarrel was off being questioned by the Ministry of Magic because so something weird happened at Hogwarts and so was, the defense professor's a suspect, right? But Harry wasn't. And so, like, you're right that this is seems important that when Dumbledore said, Show me Tom Riddle, it would have shown him where Harry was. Yeah. yeah. So Dumbledore's and that would say like I guess both of those would be super important for Dumbledore to know, but that would be the bigger if you only could know one, knowing that Harry is Tom Riddle is kind of a big deal and i guess we probably safely assume that it's not like dumbledore would be like huh i wonder what that means like he would 
pick up on he he maybe wouldn't be able to figure out the entire thing from there but he would notice that there was some really big fucking deal well but he doesn't do anything with that knowledge right like that's because that bitch crazy (laughs) no yeah so yeah totally like he doesn't well i mean i don't we don't know that he we are not aware of anything he might have done but yeah i guess what that so there's lots of possibilities in my head for how this could play out but i guess the the one i'm honing in on is Dumbledore has maybe even already knew, but like Dumbledore knew from that point, which is quite a few chapters ago has known this whole time that Harry is Tom Riddle. And then, then we're left to wonder what is it, you know, what's, what has Dumbledore's play been since what does Dumbledore think he's doing uh, by letting things keep going? Does he think this is just how the plot plays out from here. But I, so yeah, I guess I'm operating on the theory that Dumbledore has known since that moment that Harry and Tom Riddle are the same person. And we don't fully know what he decided to do with that information, but I'm kind of like leaning towards he, he's running with some kind of like crazy hero story laws of the universe theory of what he ought to be interpreting from that. I can mean all kinds of things, but I'm leaning towards Dumbledore is not acting like a sane person with that information. He's definitely doing something with the information, but not what a normal person would do. Fair enough. We'll put a pin in that. Hopefully that gets resolved. That's my my theory. (laughs) Works for me. But that, yeah, that does seem like a super big thing. Like, yeah, this is the super big question mark laid down in this chapter is, okay, Dumbledore has known this for quite some time. What the fuck does that mean? So, so yeah, it's a curious, curious little advancement. Curious indeed. Um, Oh yeah. So then he uh, goes on to say that, um, you know, as we all knew, Snape was helping the, the spew girls uh, take down bullies and that he, then this is where Quirrell volunteers that, oh yeah. And he had to do this in secret from Dumbledore. And uh, you know, do you know why that is? Because he was trying to, you know, ruin Slytherin house and all that stuff. Um, Yeah. Why would, that part I didn't fully follow. Why would so I got the part about how like Dumbledore was Dumbledore put Snape in charge of Slytherin House because because he thought that was a bad thing for Slytherin House that Snape would be a shitty you know house head. But I guess I didn't fully follow. Why would Snape? I mean, I could see sort of like you know small scale practical reasons why Snape would have to hide that. But is there some bigger picture reason why? Snape helping the heroines fight bullies was something that he would need to hide from Dumbledore specifically, I guess. Uh, Quirrell thinks that Snape eventually realized that the reason that Dumbledore put him in charge of Slytherin house was because he wanted Slytherin to turn out like dog shit. And so if he, if Dumbledore became aware of the fact that Snape was actually trying to make Slytherin better then Dumbledore would try and get in the way. Um, oh, okay. So, so yeah, this is, is this, this is what Snape, this is what Quirrell thinks Snape thinks, but I I don't know. Do you find that compelling? Um, I could see. I well, I guess I'm wondering then. So would so that's a new way to think about that. So I'm thinking about it right now. I'm wondering. So if you're then Snape in that situation, are you doing that because because you've decided that bullying is a Slytherin thing and you want to. Uh, undermine the ability of Slytherins to bully or I guess I'm wondering like, how is, is it a specifically help Slytherin motivation to 
helping Hermione fight bullies? And then that's a good question. Be? It could just be that he hates bullies in general because he was bullied. Which, yeah, which, yeah, which then totally like, especially because yeah, we all remember like that. Even I don't even think that was done in this book, but yeah, that that they're very like humanizing scene of Snape being bullied by James Potter um, and wanting to fight that. But is that just, so that's just like, Oh, I don't like bullies, which like then totally makes Snape much more sympathetic. But is it just the bullishness that makes it then this is how I'm trying to help Slytherin or I guess I'm, I'm still not clear on what makes it specifically trying to undo the damage Dumbledore is trying to do to Slytherin. Right. Well, I guess first off, like I, I'm suspicious of the idea that it's just because he hates bullies because you know Snape himself is like the biggest bully in Hogwarts. That's true. Um, That's you point. know, if he, if he hated bullies, he wouldn't be such an asshole. Yeah. But Although I, I sort of like take that as like the very sort of like tragic nerd phenomenon of you know repeating the cycle of abuse. Could be, yeah, and that that's that's perfectly uh, legitimate guess. I think. As far as how does helping the spew witches make Slytherin look better, I think because there were two prominent Slytherins in the group. Um, and if they were all being heroes together, like it might serve as a role model to show, look, Slytherins are are just as part of the you know the the, the important mixture of a, oh, yeah, of, a of a good so group. Who, who are the Slytherins in the heroin group? Oh hell, uh, Daphne Palmer Greengrass Green? and Tracy Davis. Okay. No wait, not Daphne. Oh, wait, was it Daphne? No, Daf- no, Daphne's a Hufflepuff, I think. Okay, hold on, Tracy Davis and somebody Tracy's else. Slytherin fits. If I, I, I can't remember. Padma, all was Padma one of the heroes? Padma Patil. Fuck. She might've been, I don't remember. she might've been I a Slytherin. It's like run together. I forget. Yeah. Anyway, there were, I, I, all I remember is that there were two from each house. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause they, they remark so on that. That was a way of him advancing Slytherins as heroes. Just as, yeah. Like, you know, Hey, look, these, all these witches are doing heroic things and they're make, they're made up equal parts of all the houses. Yeah. Um, and Slytherins as people perfectly willing to align with the quote good guys if it's in you know service of a noble effort. Exactly. And I do like right, how right. um Yeah. All right, Snape. I like how right. uh correlates this out and he says that continue this process long enough, um, and no child would want to go to Slytherin. The house would be retired, and if the hat kept calling the name, it would become a mark of ignominy among children who would afterwards be distributed among the other three houses. From that day on, Hogwarts would have three upstanding, house, upstanding houses of courage, scholarship, and industry, with no house of bad children added to the mix. And it's well, now, like, now I like, so I'm sort of like picturing the way Quarrel would regard this whole, you know, he would think of it as some, you know, bizarre obsession of Snape's about the silly subject of bullying like quarrel wouldn't relate at all to the like you know earnest human need to like stop bullying you're like i don't know this is some weird fetish on snake's part no i think quarrel even says that he rather dislikes bullies himself oh yeah i guess so yeah that's um, right. so i think I mean, that I just, you know yeah, there's somewhere feel the disconnect of like quarrel because like on snape's part that's a like a very admirable like sympathetic quality like snape having this like level of understanding of what it's like to be that bullied kid and that that being a thing that you know quarrel totally couldn't connect with right quarrel probably doesn't like bullies because when he was you know a little kid bullies were able to you know whatever push him around and he wasn't powerful enough to stop them and i bet in his mind it's as simple as i found that annoying yeah exactly yeah these mere mortals taking on airs yeah oh and this is where harry then asks about bellatrix and 
he says she was, she was broken before I ever met her. And that, uh, you know, since I couldn't give her what she wanted from me, um, I commended her to the Lestrange brothers for their, for their use. And the three of them were happy in their own special way. And then, <laughs> it's pretty fucked up. That's yeah, fucked up. it is pretty fucked up. That's the kind I of Voldemort analysis, sort of, right? Yeah. And I don't even know, I'm not even sure what to make of it, but it did seem, it just sticks out in my head that there was this, I don't know if it's just a like Yudkowsky thing of like, okay, there is a certain level of shitty, evil misogyny that I'm just not willing to portray in my bad guy. <laughs> He's like, you know, not even I will go here. And so he felt the need to like, like dial that back and quarrel. I, you um, know, I don't know. I think that maybe just Voldemort probably doesn't have the urge to, whatever yeah I mean, yeah i could see it like yeah that like that's a level of like his complete disconnect from even being human that not even like you know evil rapey you know libido works for him but to some extent it did even feel because it was it was almost it felt like quarrel saying like you, like i know you think that's pretty fucked up what i might have done to bellatrix but yeah i wasn't doing that like it, it did seem like this it didn't track from things at all but it was oh it was it stuck out as kind of curious of it was a way of Quirrell sort of saying like, you know, I know you might suspect I was, you know, involved in this level of like sadism and evil, but no, I wasn't doing that. And he did kind of, right. kind of toss it off. He's like, yeah, I didn't give so much of a shit that I wasn't perfectly willing to let the black brother or the, not the black brothers, the Lestrange brothers. Am I getting it? I can't even remember the name. Yeah. The Those Lestrange. guys, Lestrange brothers to, you know, get all rapey with this girl. Uh, but, you know, that's not my jam. So whatevs. And because Quirrell doesn't have feelings, he just assumed that everyone was happy with that mix. Yeah. And then Harry points yeah, out. He's yeah. Like, and like, oh, you know, Bellatrix is this broken person. I don't give much of a shit. But yeah, it did, it did stick out to me. I don't, yeah, it doesn't matter so much as like storytelling, but I thought it was uh, kind of interesting that there was this weird level of something like, like there's a level of, of rapey sadism that like not even in this story is okay to portray. <laughs> so I'm just going to kind of leave that alone. Well, it's it's almost as yeah, you're right. I mean, he he doesn't like you know use her for his own sex stuff, but he's yeah. like, hey, you know what? Because like, like it would fit as far as like, oh my god, this guy is complete fucking pure evil that he just you know like, yeah sure, and then she was just like like my little rape victim, like yeah, just this that whole level of like, and it would fit as far as like you know narcissist evil whatever, but yeah, just like that would be that volume is that would be turning up the volume to 12 and that would just be too much for the story. <laughs> like there's even though like, you know, when like Draco says, Oh, one day I'm going to, you know, rape Luna Lovegood. Like, like that's the sort of shocking, you know, whiplash around like, Oh shit. But like, even like the whole Bellatrix black thing is so bad. Like you can't, you can't go that far that that'll like yank us all out of the story. Yeah. But I guess you go to the next bad thing where he's like, so I gave her to the mm-hmm. strange brothers for their use. Yeah. And like, Which is pretty bad, but at least right. like not so bad that it yanks you out of the story. Well, it's in in my mind, yeah. I mean, it's I guess it's not quite as bad as you know, mind fucking her into being your sex slave. But it's like yeah. the 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 bummer part is that like again, the because of Voldemort not being a, a real person who understands empathy and stuff, he says, and the three of them were happy in their own special way. And yeah. the fact is that he's, he's wrong about that. Harry points out that he says if that were true, Bellatrix wouldn't have remembered who their Lestrange brothers were when we found her in Azkaban. Yeah. And it's like she 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 wasn't happy in that situation, you monster. Yeah. Like it's and it's it's evil of you to, to imagine that she was. Um Yeah, it would so, be, yeah, but it would be almost like too much. Like you couldn't even try to relate to a character to understand them if 
they graduated to that level of, you know, just sadism for the sake of pain. That's a good point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like that, that would be too much. Yeah. And then, then you just couldn't, you would just get, yeah, that would be then be the only thing your brain could latch onto. And you'd be like, okay, this is too much. I'm not reading the story anymore. Right. And that's actually, you know, that's why I think it was awesome that, uh, Draco's whatever, uh, journey of co- coming to the light side of the force started from that point. Right. Because to him, he, you know, he's, he's an 11 year old dipshit. He doesn't know what, you know, uh, I don't even like to use the word, but he doesn't know what it means to rape somebody. Like, I mean, he, he probably knows vaguely yeah. what's involved, but like, he doesn't know what the actual horror of it is. He just thinks that's a, a cool thing, you know, older, bad, o- older baddies do. And he wants to be a yeah, baddie. It was, so. Yeah. Just kind of a placeholder for, you know, sadistic domination. Right. But what's cool about Draco's journey starting there is that he gets to come back from that evil place. If that was like where the person wound up, then it's like, oh yeah, this guy sucks. What's great about Draco is like, oh yeah, that guy sucked and he's getting better. Um, so I really, I really like the Draco, like where the Draco character has gone. Cause it, 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 it is sort of, it's not this kind of like unrealistic, like, oh, and now I've turned into this noble blah, blah. It was more like, okay, you've given this like regular guy, permission to stop pretending to be the guardian of humanity sign of Malfoy and just be like, Oh, I'm just a regular person that would like to be nice to people, including to Hermione, because even though I've been told I'm supposed to like look down on her for being, you know, mudblood, she seems like a cool person. Um, so he's yeah, just sort great. of like allowed to walk into the being a decent person that he would have been if you left him alone. I know. I love the whole thing. Yeah. It's cool. Um, yeah. It's a cool. I think that's probably like, like making so Hermione, I mean, a just Hermione's cool, but like actually the original Hermione was pretty cool anyway. But the like the I think like the the award for most improved goes to Draco Malfoy because um, a you both made him like way more three dimensional, but in a sort of really kind of interesting way that makes you like really kind of like brute for him. Yeah, and it's it's uh, I, I mean we've talked about it in previous episodes too, but like the whole thing is like you know he he never stood a chance as a kid. You don't pick. Your yeah. upbringing. So he was raised, he was exactly the person he was going to be being raised yeah. by Darth Vader. His dad is David Duke. Right, exactly. Yeah. So what what chance did he have? And his, uh, um, oh, it's not David Duke. Who's the uh, the leader of the Westboro Baptist Church? Um, uh, yeah, I know. The, I don't know. The Westboro Baptist, that's a lot more like white, trashy, lowbrow. Like, it's true, but I, I brought it up. Lucius Malfoy is like powerful and erudite and a dick. I just brought it up because, uh, the founder's uh, granddaughter uh, mm. got away from the church and is now an advocate yeah, against it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Megan Phelps—that's her name. Fred Phelps was the grandpa then. Yeah, uh, she's a badass, and so she she did what Draco did, uh, but without maybe she had a Harry in her life. Who knows? But she uh, actually no, I, I I heard her her story of it. It was mainly her that kind of came to the realization that this was all wrong, um, and it was it's just as so tragic as it was going to be for Draco. Like her her mom doesn't even talk to her. She's not allowed to. Um, My first job out of college, one of the people I worked with was the nephew of, I think his name is Tom Metzger, the head of the white Aryan resistance in, uh, where is that? Northeast County, San Diego, Temecula, California. Um, yeah. Is that your first kind of, No, my first job out of college, one of the other guys at the, the company I worked at, 
Uh, and then weirdly, like somebody that a roommate in college knew, uh, I think I'm just going to drop names. This is a person that might eventually hear about Mark Metzger was like totally innocent, cool guy. His uncle happened to be Tom Metzger, the head of the white Aryan resistance in Fallbrook, California, uh, like North San Diego County. Uh, yeah. So it's weird. It's like, oh, you have to sort of like carry around the luggage of like, oh, this is my racist uncle. Yeah, there's <laughs> Uh, it's not a relative, but the founder of my company's name is Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> oh, so sorry. Yeah, Epstein's not like a super rare name. No. And so, uh, I imagine and that- neither is Jeffrey. Yeah. Maybe that's why he's an entrepreneur and not applying for jobs, you know, even now. <laughs> I mean, it, he's obviously not going to be the, the Jeff Epstein, you know, applying at a software job. You know, but still. it's not so bad that like there's no more like Adolfs or people named Hitler in the world. But one of my ten percent, uh, like early or late 1800s, uh, one of my uh, ancestors, his first name was Adolf. Adolf, it, you know, it was a perfectly innocent name until 80 years ago. Yeah, and he was born in the last quarter of the 1800s, so um, no blame there. But I think I read there was some like relative of Hitler that fought for the U.S. That's pretty cool. I think you're right. I've heard something similar. And that, the, and that they're what they actually, I think there are no more living relatives of Hitler, but that until very recently there still were, but they like changed their name and they had completely disavowed the whole thing. And yada, yada, yada. So and what we were they doing? I don't know how we got on a white supremacy other than it's very coral. Right. I remember <laughs> people who listened will, will be able to follow the track, but they'll, they'll have to listen to this jeer back where, uh, so Basically, Harry then asks, all right, so what the hell were we doing in Azkaban? And the whole thing, it wasn't about rescuing a, a lieutenant. It wasn't about getting, you know, uh, exactly. He's like, oh, I was wondering where she put my magic stick. Yeah, and, I need that bitch. I need to find out where the wand is. Well, he she doesn't even really back, need her. She can go back to he fucking just, the strangers, whatevs. I think if he could have. No, he actually did say like, oh, I like, oh, I sent it back somewhere to recover. Like it was that that was kind of part of the whole thing of like, hey, I'm not this evil of a sadist. Like. She's she was a loyal follower. I needed to find out where my wand was, but then I like you know sent her off to some sort of rehab clinic to get better. Honestly, I think that if if he could have gotten away with like just leaving her there, he probably would have. I don't think he cares about her one yeah. bit. I think that the reason that he he escaped her out of there is because Harry wouldn't have gone along with it otherwise. But oh, if he could maybe, have just said, maybe like, he "Hey, bitch, tell me where it is," and then he would have just left her there. Exactly. Although maybe yeah, she didn't recover. Like, like his whole, yeah. yeah, his whole sociopathy thing is like consistent with she's like, oh, I am not like feeling like fucking women is too much of a human emotion, and I'm just not into it. Um, I, so I get the like, impression. Okay, yeah, tell me where it is, and I'm done. Yeah, yeah. He's just, he's above that. But then he does say, and this is kind of you can run with this in whatever direction you know your your mind naturally goes to. He says, I had. He's like, so where, what did you do with her? sent her to a peaceful place to recover strength. I had a remaining use for her, or rather a certain portion of her. Oh, so, I didn't pick up. Oh, oh, I wonder what he meant by that. Huh? Well, if you want to go straight to the gutter, it's obviously. Well, yeah, my, well, yeah, except, yeah, well, um, so I'm wondering, <laughs> well, I mean, yes, my mind did go straight to the gutter. So I definitely am uh, aware of what he meant by, or about what part of her he was talking about, but, um, what does he mean by that? Cause it like, it fits in my head of my understanding of Coral that sex stuff is just like, is too close to, you know, empathy with other humans and therefore he's not into it. Agreed. Um, so what would he mean by, 
Because, I mean, yeah, what that sounds like is like, oh, I still had use for, you know, using her as some kind of sex object to hand around. Um, but yeah, I wonder what, because I think, so having overlooked that, I read that as, okay, I'm not so much of a sadist that she was a loyal follower. So I sent her off somewhere to get better. And that like that was like, at some level, like an actually sincere seems like too strong a word, but, you know, not a lie that he really was trying to, you know, let her recover. But yeah, and I, now that you say that, I wonder what the fuck did he mean by that? On my future plans, I shall not answer questions. <laughs> so, yeah. So, what was the exact phrase he said? A certain part of her? I had a remaining use for her, or rather, a certain portion of her. A certain portion of her. That's a sinister little phrase, isn't it? Right. But then he uh, says that, on my future plans, I shall not answer questions. So... Yeah, what the fuck would he mean? A certain portion mm. of her, maybe just. I'm wondering, like, is that just like, oh, I need to use her soul for something Horcruxy? That does seem an awful. Like now that actually paying attention to the phrase, that does an awful lot seem to be alluding to treating her as a uh, piece of meat. Could be, could be. I had, I had way more vulgar ways to put that that were. Didn't pass my vulgarity filter. Thanks um, for restraining yourself. <laughs> yes. What's 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 our podcast rating? It's um, it's, it's whatever level below allows you to say whatever. You <laughs> whatever level below allowing you to verbalize that thought. Um, <laughs> ah, that's interesting. Yeah, and that's and actually that works because that's like right on that level of you know. That's right on the line between what amount of completely evil are we allowed to put Quirrell at before our brain disengages and no longer wants to read the story, uh, especially like just vaguely alluding to it. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 I'm, so, uh, yeah, I guess I'll be super <laughs> – now I'm super curious if, like, if that line pans out into anything further in the story. I hope so. Um <laughs> yeah, you would. You sick oh, fuck. you, you nasty. <laughs> I, I, I meant it in the purely, uh, you know, you uh, you know in this, clean it, way of saying, I hope there are no loose ends. Yeah, no. In our the whole Abbott and Costello uh, diamond dynamic you and I have going on in this podcast, you are definitely the good guy. So I'm the one. Hoping I think we take turns. Some, some like, yeah, no, no. So, I mean, you can hope for that, but yeah, you're you're really, really not very good at being a terrible person. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess that's 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 a compliment. And it, it is. It is. Well, all right. So, um, so yes, uh, his remaining small plots was he brought a Dementor, hoping that uh, it would arrange for Harry to recover uh, some of his true memories, and um, he and arranged some of the attacks on the Rangers so they could win. The only reason and, for the whole Patronus thing was just as an excuse to get a Dementor on campus. Right, um, and I get, and the whole reason, um, the only reason for getting a Dementor on campus is as a way to shock Harry into remembering that he's Tom Riddle. Is that something like that? He says, "Hopefully, you regain some of your true memories." And I guess he regained one. Uh, he remembered the night his parents died, and when Harry, when he was recounting it to Voldemort here, he had said that in retrospect, it was clear he remembered it mostly from Voldemort's point of view, um, but that was not clear to clear or even hinted to us earlier in the story. Uh, and uh, really, none of that does much to advance Quirrell's agenda, unless he's just uh, trying to wake up. How, yeah, nothing about what what Harry recalled really helped. 
cool. No, not at all. I think that if anything, it probably hurt because I think what he wanted was to kind of like, oh yeah, let's try and make this, you know, this kid that isn't nearly as Tom Riddley as I'd hoped he would be. Let's try and make him more Tom Riddley. I think that's what that was his goal. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. And that he would, yeah, that Harry would awaken to the joys of killing idiots. Right. <laughs> as, as long as I have like alluded to that line, it was, it was a good line. What was it? Killing idiots is my great joy in life. And I'll thank you not to speak ill of it until you've tried it yourself. Let's get a taco. I'm going to go back. Yeah. To that. We'll get that to the end. I'm not, I'm not yeah, you're going to have to explain that one to me. I haven't seen that movie. Um, oh my God. Right, so, are you fucking kidding me? Oh, maybe. Okay. Reservoir Dogs. We've never seen Reservoir Dogs. Oh, I have. Is this Reservoir, Reservoir Dogs? Dogs? Okay. That That's is Reservoir Dogs. Dogs. Okay, I've seen it's it. Tim Roth, Harvey Keitel. This must be the very beginning maybe. of the movie then. It's, uh, it's like about midway. It's, it's a flashback. As with all Tarantino things, it's hard to keep track of uh, chronology in the movie. But I think Chronologically, it's this is early in the movie. Or like, yeah, early well, in the yeah, timeline. It's, it's before, it's, yeah, it's before all of the – but yeah, most of the movie is flashback, so. Yeah, I recognize the guy. The I think it's seat. like while they're yeah, that's Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel. There, well, now shit, we've talked about it. Um, okay, so you, you put a picture from that scene of "I'm hungry, let's get a taco," and uh, so yeah, I recognize the guy in the passenger seat as the guy who robbed the diner in Pulp Fiction, and the guy from the TV show Tim "Lie Roth. to Me." Yes, yes, yes. Yep. The, and then the uh, other yeah, guy the fuck is, this, is this the guy that was is this the guy that was chopping up the uh, the cop? Chopping up. The no, driver? that's uh, no, that is Michael Madsen plays Mr. Blonde, uh, who is the actually after I put this in, I realized the uh, there's a couple connections to the prophecy that I keep dropping in this podcast. Um, Mr. Blonde is played by Michael Madsen, um, whose sister was Virginia Madsen. And then I remembered after doing this, and I'm pretty sure Michael Madsen had a bit part in that same the prophecy movie, but yet, yeah, no, so it's Mr. Blonde that like cuts off the guy's ear. To the tune of Little Green Bag, which I then had to replay this morning. It's a good song. Uh, wasn't um, it stuck in the middle with you? Uh, no, that's also there. But no, while he's, oh, you know, you might be, oh, yeah, you're right. No, the like cool dudes in black suits walking down the street is Little Green Bag. You're right. Yeah, stuck in the middle with you, with you is the chopping off his ear scene. Yeah. But no, so there's the scene. And what, I remember it just burned in my yeah, brain forever. We're talking about too much. I know, right? Yeah, I'm, yeah it's a fucked up, awesome scene. Uh, it's very, yeah, it's the. Uh, it also reminds like how we said like I think last episode that that the scene in front of the door was like everybody like pointing wands at each other it felt like a Tarantino scene, but no. So the way this chapter ends with like okay they talked about all the things, Quirrell goes like through this very psychopath like description of like just how he wants to fuck with the world, and then it just sort of ends with like okay we're done with the I'm you know I'm done making the potion and it's time to go to the mirror so let's get the fuck out of here. That reminded me of of this scene that I, I put. so in our notes I pulled this picture of it's uh, Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth sitting in the car, uh, and Harvey Keitel is just like told this whole they're, they're talking about like okay how do we rob a place because uh, the the plot for Reservoir Dogs is a, it's a bunch of guys that have just pulled off a heist but it all went fucked up and people got caught by the cops and and most of the movie takes place inside this warehouse that they're hiding in. Um, but so there's this flashback with Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth sitting in a car. As like, I think they're like casing the joint of the place that they're going to rob later. This is weird flashback, but uh, and so they're talking about like uh, so Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel. Tim Roth is like the more like sort of junior newbie robber, and Harvey Keitel is the like oh I've done this a bajillion times guy. Um, and so they're like you know how do you pull off a robbery when you're doing it, and. Uh, so the lines from Harvey Keitel is when you're dealing with a store like this, they're insured up the ass. They're not supposed to give you any resistance whatsoever. If you get a customer or an employee who thinks he's Charles Bronson, take the butt of your gun and smash their nose in, drops them right to the floor. 
Everyone jumps. He falls down screaming. Blood squirts out his nose. Freaks everybody out. Nobody says fucking shit after that. You might get some bitch talk shit to you, but give her a look like you're going to smash her in the face next. Watch her shut the fuck up. Now, if it's a manager, that's a different story. The managers know better than the fuck around. So if one's giving you static, he probably thinks he's a real cowboy. So you got to what you got to do is break that son of a bitch in two. If you want to know something he won't tell you, cut off one of his fingers, the little one. Then tell him his thumb's next. After that, he'll tell you if he wears ladies' underwear. Pause. And he's all done with that conversation. I'm hungry. Let's get a taco. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also a very LA thing to say. But If Quirrell didn't have magic and he was his limits of his exercise ability to exercise his evil impulses was robberies, this would be a lesson he's giving his protege. <laughs> exactly. That's what, so yeah, because this scene ends with like, okay, we're all done making the potion. I'm done with your fucking questions. It's time to go get the mirror. Let's get the fuck out of here. You know, so when he said all that, it was like, I'm like, yeah, Quirrell's hungry. He wants a taco. I could use a taco. I don't know what that says about me. Um, you like ta- tacos are good. They are good. Who doesn't like a taco? All right. But before we get to that point, which is awesome. Thanks right, for reading right. that. And he did a good job. Uh, so Harry asks his fourth and final question. He says, what was going on? Like, what was your objective during the Wizarding War? What was the point of the entire thing? And, uh, you know, actually at the top, I forgot to pull this out in the episode. But when Harry says, um, like, when he's trying to think of his first question, he says, why? Professor Quirrell, why? Why must you be this way? Why make yourself the monster? Why Lord Voldemort? That's the exact same phrasing that Dumbledore uses when he's asking Harry to explain Voldemort to him. Yeah. In like the first interaction they have or something. Um, so I thought that was kind of fun. Yeah. But anyway, so well, yeah, here- it sticks out so much as like, like this is the big difference between Harry and Quirrell is Quirrell doesn't get like, why wouldn't you just want to do nice things to people and be happy? Um, and like Quirrell just doesn't get it. Like that's not even a concept he understands. And Harry's like, you know, your whole, even from the most super logical way of like trying to evaluate your universe, what you're doing is fucked up and doesn't work for you. And that, and that's where I, that's where I feel bad that, you know, the young Tom Riddle was just a, a defective person. Like, cause he made a cognitive backup of himself on a healthy brain. And that brain had all the Tom Riddleiness, but it also had a, you know, the ability to, of, of compassion and empathy. And, uh, like that's the difference that made all the difference between professor Quirrell and Harry. Right. Like, yeah. You, and you that's like, an ambitious that's and, and cunning and, uh, high gold person, uh, you know, who's also sometimes occasionally full of themselves and, you know, really smart, et cetera. But you can have all of that without having it to be Voldemort. You can have it be Harry. Yeah. So like if Voldemort's a, brain wasn't broken, he would have been Harry Potter, right? Yeah. And that's like my big ticket, like the the quote moral of the story for this book, different, very different from the original books, is uh, like Harry's Harry, the specifically Harry and not Tom Riddle, um, like starting from the same raw stuff. Um, so he's like, you know, a rebooted Tom Riddle core like uses rationality to choose who he wants to be. And Harry chooses using rationality as a tool to do it, to be a good person. And I think that's sort of like, for me, that's like, if, like if Yudkowsky is trying to preach some shit at us, it's like, like rationality is a tool that lets you step back, look at what you, what you want to do and make a moral decision about who do you want to be in the universe um, and make it with eyes wide open and that people will make the right choice if they can. And Quirrell is the thing that wasn't capable of doing it 
and so turned into that fucked up thing. And Harry starting with the same, even completely fucked up starting point of like, oh, I am this like psycho Tom Riddle. If he's able to step back and say, what does it make sense for me to be, chooses to be better. And then if you just keep reapplying the, if I point this critical eye at myself, how should I be acting? If you just do that over and over and over again. It doesn't matter where you start from, you will end up at a better person. Hmm. Um, and so like, like for that. me, like that's like, that's like the huge, for me, that's like the moral of the story is like, and that's the, like, that's what, I mean, some, sometimes I think like, oh, you're kind of giving too much credit for what quote rationality means, but like to the extent that that's what you mean is, you know, turn that eye on yourself, um, be honest with yourself and, and require that anything you claim be backed up by evidence that if you keep doing that over and over again, you will arrive at being a good person that like empathy, humanity, good actions, caring about other people are the end result of just taking a dispassionate view of what I ought to do. And you just hang on to that idea of being true is important and just don't let go of that. You will eventually arrive at being the kind of person you would like to be. And that like, that's the thing Harry did do. And that's the hair, the thing Quirrell did not do. Starting from the same place, if you don't do one thing, you end up like Quirrell. If you do do it, you end up as Harry, neither of which started out with a different advantage. They're the same person. One went rational, one didn't. One turned into a monster, one turned into Harry. I I really like that because it makes rationality sound all awesome. I, well, and I, I kind of like that's like I keep going like, you know what? I don't disagree with any of this. Like that's a super cool idea. It is. Uh, and then as long as you get away from the idea, like, oh, and like being comic book guy and feeling yourself above and beyond everybody else, that's the choral direction. And that's like rationality doesn't lead you to that. If that's like the temptation, which is kind of the cool, like more, you know, complex version of how this works is, by the way, if you think that's what you're doing, the temptation will be to think you're this awesome superhuman. Don't do that either because you're not. Keep sticking to the truth part of that and it will both bring you humility about it and lead you back to being a good person. Um, and that like, oh, the danger of thinking you're doing this is that you might also turn into a quarrel in thinking that you're better than. Um, but that's also not true. I, I really like all of that. And I, I don't want to give away like what I think the story is about till we finish it. Um, or like what the, what, if there's a moral, what it might be. The only thing is that you said that they start from the same place. Neither one had an advantage. I do think that there was a difference that I think Voldemort, and this is my, just my supposition. This doesn't like, I don't think they come out and say this, but like, I think Voldemort's brain was broken since he was born. And like when he looked in and said, what kind of person do I want to be? There was no, there was no ingredient there that said, I want to be loved and to love people. Right. Um, like there, that just, that wasn't part of when he, you know, he could look in, he, he could introspect all he wants. That's just not part of what's in there. Um, I think that was the advantage. One, one of the advantages that Harry had, but I like, I like what you said. I think that there's definitely, that's, that's gotta be probably as part of it, but yeah. And, for, and as you say that, what I'm thinking is like, so then the seed of that is Harry raised in a loving family with, um, Petunia and whatever the fuck professor dad's name is. Uh, but those are like genuinely good people that, um, you know, in spite of like not doing it perfectly or whatever, that they gave him a, you know, a high, you are a person we care about and we're going to try to do good, 
good by you. Like that's enough of a seed for him to grab onto, to then just try to emulate that and, you know, eventually turn into a good person. Yeah. I, I like that. We'll have to put a pin in that and try to remember in like whatever, six weeks or something when the show's wrapping up and I get to give my <laughs> final thoughts on what I think the book was about. Um, you're finally able to admit that Quirrell is Voldemort. Oh, wait, we can finally admit to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, speaking of Quirrell being Voldemort. So, um, Harry had already deduced that, yes, of course, you were both David Monroe and Voldemort during the Wizarding War. Um, but he says, all right, you planned to control whichever side won the war, regardless of which side won. But why did one side have to be Voldemort? I mean, wouldn't it have been easier to gain public support with someone less, someone less Voldemort? And <laughs> this is this is the like, I don't know, another kind of shoe dropping moment. Where he says, like, I planned for Voldemort to lose to David Monroe. Um, that the, the whole thing was like, no, I, I, the whole like, it comes out where he says, basically, I had never been a dark wizard before, like at this scale. So I wanted to get you know work out the kinks, and so I made one you know, with an obvious agenda of ambition and racism and gave myself glowing red eyes and gave my, my followers skull masks <laughs> and, and, I and like told them to call the death eaters. Exactly. So like, you know, I, I went full like balls to the wall. He looks vaguely like a Nazi from Sigilous List. Right. Let, let's, let's make this as ridiculous <laughs> as possible uh, as far as like, you know, a caricature of a dark Lord. And that, that'll be, let me practice getting the kinks out. And then I can, uh, you know, do it for real after Dave Monroe wins. But, the this is where he expresses his annoyance again with like the wizarding world he's like no every time i like dispatched fewer troops the ministry issued fewer troops to fight them like we it never occurred to me that you all would suck this bad right and so (laughs) um there's this also a little fun thing he says when he's talking about why he wanted to do a dry run with uh lord voldemort he says i was reminded of the story of dark evangel and the disaster of her first public appearance. According to what she said afterwards, she'd meant to call herself the walking catastrophe and the apostle of darkness. But in the excitement of the moment, she, she introduced herself as the apostrophe of darkness instead. <laughs> <laughs> she had to ruin two whole villages before anyone would take her seriously after that. And this is where Harry says he finally understood because it's just what he would have done if he had had no trace of ethics whatsoever, if he'd been that empty inside. He says, you created a disposable identity to learn how the ropes worked and get your mistakes out of the way. And he says, yep, that was very cool. sort of like sciencey experimental, which is a very like pro rationalist way to do it. Yep. If you're a rationalist with, without any ambition or without any uh, virtue or ethics uh, and you want to try something insane, why not? That's the way to do it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he practiced with the, you know, glowing red eyes, bad guy. And, um, and then I like like the description and any, especially like the way that Quirrell like describes it is like, oh yeah, I started out just thinking I was going to be this cartoonishly evil dude, but then, oh, it kept not working. And then I was having you like, you know, stand in line at the DMV, you know, trying to tell some guy that like, hey, you should really be fighting the bad guys. And they didn't want to, and they were getting off on some power trip of being the bureaucrat that has control over me. That I was just like, okay, fuck this. And these dumbasses, I'm going to start murdering people until they all get smart. That didn't work. Like I, he sort of, like this, like kind of very believable description of him starting to enjoy the power of, you know what, if you intimidate the fuck out of people, they start doing what you say. And that's pretty convenient. 
Um, but he eventually like, you know, I wasn't expecting the opposition to be so weak, but as long as they are and my followers are so super loyal and say all kinds of flattering shit about me, uh, this is kind of cool. And so he kind of got like, he himself got like sucked into the temptation of like, well, shit, if this is all the, you know, resistance they're going to put up, I might as well, you know, enjoy having followers while I'm doing it. Yeah. I think that, yeah, that's a good summary. He ended up just enjoying it. And the fact that like they weren't putting up a good fight, there's that, uh, the line about how, you know, three and four of your classmates who have parents who work in the ministry and there's like 15,000 people who mm-hmm. live here. So how, how's everyone employed by the government? Well, they're all getting in the way each other's way with bureaucratic red tape. Yeah, and creating work for each other. Exactly. So like, you know, other than Dumbledore, there's no one to get, you know, in my way. Um, he mentions this too, because Mundungus Fletcher was a OG um, uh, Order of the Phoenix guy, remember? Like the thief yeah. kept stealing. Uh, yeah, he was the one that turned on everybody. He betrayed oh yeah, them, I, yeah. For, I forgot about that. I just remember that he was like stealing silverware and shit. But it says that an incompetent, shiftless, cowardly layabout, Mundungus Fletcher, was considered a key asset in the Order of the Phoenix because being otherwise unemployed, he did not need to juggle another job. And his his whole thing is that he's pissed because like they weren't taking this seriously. Like there were fifty of us, and we outnumbered the you know our enemies in every yeah. encounter. Yeah, like, and, especially like and every time he like lowered the difficulty level, they just matched their incompetence to that level. Right. And he says that, and eventually, Harry said, through heart sickness, you realized you were just having more fun as Voldemort. And he says, it was the least annoying role I'd ever played. If Voldemort says something is to be done, people obey him and do not argue. And I did not have to express my impulse to cruciate people being idiots. For once, it was all part of the role. If someone was making the game less pleasant for me, I just said Avada Kedavra, whether, regardless of whether that was strategically wise, and they never bothered me again. Like the whole thing, like you just, you, you turn off like everything in you that cares about being a person and like quarrel makes sense. Right. Um, if you, if you turn off everything about and that, that you care like, about, and, like what was convincingly that? sociopath. That was like, it's also like convincingly yeah. sociopath that like, oh, like, like, Oh, this is the least annoying role I've ever played. Not like, Oh, I super enjoyed this. It was like, oh, of all the things that have irritated me, this was the least. So, um, right. So yeah, so it comes across as just like a person that doesn't value other humans in the slightest. Yeah. And then he recounts like when he was uh, trying to get a visa to go to like the same, like to some martial arts camp. I think this is like the David Monroe story of how he went to go train with the, you know, at Dr. Strange's school of fighting and magic. Um, or I guess just fighting because it was muggles, but whatever. Um, that like the, 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 gov- the, the ministry clerk just like smiled and said, no, I'm not going to approve your visa. And he's like, you realize this is to save your fucking life, right? And the guy just smiles and says no again. So he dips his, he says like, he dipped his hands into the cesspool of that, of his little clerk brain and forced him to live out alternate <laughs> scenarios of like, all right, if Lord Voldemort was here, if Lucius Malfoy was here, if this was D- Albus Dumbledore, and he realized that the little clerk brain just like wanted, like just enjoyed flexing any power he had, which was mm-hmm. telling people no if he could. And he wouldn't say no to Voldemort or, uh, Lucius Malfoy. She's like, all right, cool. You fucking dipshits aren't even worth saving. I'm going to let the dark side win this battle because this is, this is the enemy. You know, this is the, the people that I'm like, this is the light side of the force. Fuck you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a, I, I mean, it was, I'm lost my train of thought, but it was a, a fun scene. Um, There's also a note that you pulled out that uh, where you said he was channeling Anne Rand. Um, because like, yeah, cause he's talking about like, Oh, like, you know, your heroes, 
like the level of, and that like part of the problem was like everybody felt fine criticizing David Monroe or any kind of hero that would like stand up to bad guys because of the safety that, you know, quote, regular humans would feel like, oh, you know, if I talk shit to Dumbledore or David Monroe or anybody, because there's a good guy, there's no, you know, I'm safe. I can talk shit about them. You can't talk shit about Voldemort because he'll fucking kill you if you do. And so that like creates a level of, and that, that was a thing, like he equates that with sort of like respect as opposed to fear. Um, and that, and so he sort of, is being disdainful of, you know, anybody that does fit the hero mold that by, by obeying the rules of what it means to be a hero and being self-effacing and humble, that you are demeaning yourself to the hoi polloi. Um, and that came off very Ayn Rand to me when I read it. So the quote was, uh, well, in magical drama, it is not so. It is all humble heroes like Dumbledore. It is the fantasy of the powerful slave who will never truly rise above you, never demand your respect, never even ask you for pay. Um, especially like the pay part of that all came across as very Ayn Rand that like, you know, like, oh, to be a hero is to demean yourself to the, you know. I mean, near it, I, don't, I think that he is kind of accurately trash. describing the archetypal hero, right? Like, Spider-Man works a second job as like a pizza delivery boy and a newspaper photographer because being Spider-Man doesn't pay him enough to pay his rent. Right. Well, yeah. But, and so that's the thing, like, and that's the, like the part that he doesn't get at all is the, the value of not considering yourself better and therefore separate from the people you are working on behalf of um, that. Like, Oh, I demand pay because I have provided you a service puts you back in this completely transactional and so sociopath kind of relationship with the, with the people you're helping rather than, you know, Peter Parker being, you know, some guy who is also a dude that has to pay his rent and answer to J Jonah Jameson. Um, and, you know, and somebody tries to kill his uncle and he has to try to do something about it and find out that with great power comes great responsibility. Um, like none of that matters because I'm important and you guys should all suck up to me. Like, like Voldemort doesn't get that idea of you are also a human and these people should be important to you. And it's not some like algebra equation about, you know, what do you do and what do you get back about it? It's, you know, doing good is, you know, its own end. Um, I mean, yes. But I think it's I think it's easy to kind of see where he's coming from, even without going full Voldemort in your own head. Like, imagine how much more good Superman could do if he didn't have to hold down a job to pay his rent, right? You think even the people of the city could be like, "Hey, Superman, we can give you a budget of three thousand dollars a month so you can pay your mortgage," right? Like, and yeah, so yeah, and if but that's kind of not what he's talking about. If it was just like, okay, everybody had kind of figured out that it's important that Superman beat up bad guys and we're all going to like figure out how can we make that work so that Superman doesn't have to like waste time, you know, fucking around with his boss. That would be one thing. And that would like, if you like painted out that whole scenario, that would feel different. But if it's the like, Oh, I am too pretty to worry about paying my rent. That's a whole different vibe. to it. Um, like, I, oh, you know, I'm, I'm important and powerful and therefore shouldn't be worried with these, you know, mere plebeian concerns. Yeah. Maybe I'm steel manning Voldemort's position here too much, but I, I do think that there is a, a less like, uh, less Voldemort way to make that argument. That's actually more compelling. 
because um, you're, you're yeah. yeah, I think yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're, you're like, what that would look like would be like, oh, you know, and Superman's DC, so I don't want to talk about Superman. Let's take, you know, Professor X <laughs> says like, you know what, you guys, I've, I've had to worry about, you know, the rent in Westchester, New York is pretty high and I'm having to fuck around with this other bullshit instead of trying to defeat these bad guys over here. If you could help me out with so that I don't have to worry about that, then I can, you know, focus on protecting the good guys and making life safe for democracy. That would be super cool. Like if that's how, if that's the way it came across, you'd be like, well, fucking of course, like you shouldn't have to worry about like the city council of Westchester. Fuck those guys. Um, well, we like, never see you know, Professor X having to go to work, you know, but we do yeah. see Superman having to uh, Yeah, but if that were the thing, exactly, like, exactly. But if that were the thing, and and if that's how it came across as like, there's this important shit I could do if we could like get all of this bullshit off of my plate, then that would be, that would come across as totally differently as opposed to like, why are you, you know, mere mortals bothering me with these trivialities? Like and and yeah. and that's kind of the difference. So yeah, but like a the point is valid, but like why are you doing it, and what does that mean about how you're interacting with the people you're, you know, trying to help and or you know the bad guys you're trying to defeat, like that relationship, and that's kind of like that's so like an antenna that Quirrell doesn't even have, um, you know, he doesn't even understand what that means to interact with people that way. Right. Speaking of interacting with people that way, we're going to get there in a second because. Uh... Well, before we get there, Harry asks, um, like, okay, so, you know, why did the Wizarding War take so long? And he's like, oh, I guess you're you're asking why I didn't Imperius everybody and just kill everyone who I couldn't Imperius and take over the ministry in like three days. And Harry nods and he says, well, I asked myself that. And well, his, his I was going to read the whole thing because it's great. But his explanation is like, you know, I was having fun. Fighting Dumbledore was actually a challenge. And... Uh, when I had time to contemplate during my decade hanging out in the space sh- in the in the, in the uh, space plaque, um, I realized that at some point I didn't want to go back to playing solitaire instead of chess. And yeah, yeah, that was a good line. Yeah. So he's like, you know, it, I real I at some point I realized when the prophecy came up that time itself was taking notice of me, and I looked back and realized that somehow this has been going on for years, and so. Uh, yeah, and I liked his sort of admission that, like, sort of the vanity of what he was doing. Not like both vanity, but also just kind of the wishful thinking of he's like, well, God, you know, I was finally getting what I wanted, which was like, you know, interaction with people that could, you know, challenge me and not bore me. And I just didn't want to, you know, if I did what I said I was supposed to, that if I actually, you know, acted on the goals I was telling myself to do, then this whole fun process would end and I didn't want it to. Right. Then you get the fun process of being a dictator, which honestly sounds really annoying. So yeah. then you got to deal with bureaucrats and blah, blah. And then you're back to the whole DMV bullshit you didn't like. At least when he's running his dictatorship, he can just defy the cadaver of the clerk, right? So um, anyway, the uh, this was this is actually a yeah, the part I wanted to make as, as far as like him seeing things the, the right way was um, Harry asks him, like, okay, I want to try and teach you something because like this might actually be important. Yeah, I think he. I think in my mind, Harry was trying to kind of fast track planting the seeds of, you know, like love and kindness in Voldemort's brain. Um, but turns out Voldemort, I tried that and they just didn't take root. Right. So he says, Hey, uh, what would I do if I knew your Horcrux spell? He's like, well, you would, you know, make a, you'd find somebody that you could convince yourself whose death would save lives and make a Horcrux. And then what would I do? You'd make more. No, before that. And then he's like, ah, fuck this game. Just tell me. 
<laughs> I know. He's and, like, yeah, it's getting on my nerves. Right. And he says, I would make horcruxes for my friends. If you'd ever really cared about one single other person in the entire world, if there'd been just one person who gave your immortality meaning, someone you wanted to live, someone you wanted to live forever with you, then the idea of making a horcrux for someone else wouldn't have been such a counterintuitive thought. Yeah. He's like, what is this friends of what you speak? Right. And that's the, like, it's yeah, and then, is- like making a Harry is as close as he can get to that idea of like, well, okay, if I just made one more of me, um, then that could be somebody I could hang out with. Yeah. And it was just, uh, that's, that's the, like the key difference between, you know, Harry and Voldemort, like, you know, cause Harry's a person who cares <laughs> and Voldemort's not, but the, the idea that like, you know, Voldemort is fine wandering the world being the only person living forever and just like fucking with people for the next million years. But Harry would make everyone he cares about and eventually everyone else immortal. Yeah. Right. Like it's, I guess and that's kind of a good way. Like when we were talking about like, Oh, you know, he's got no humanity and like Harry is the person Voldemort could have been. That's like the right. potential, like, Oh, the tragedy of like, Oh, you weren't like, we're given no background to like the possibility of that or like the tragic story that made him turn out the other way. But like, yeah, the, like, oh, how could it have turned out? Like, Harry is the version of how it could have turned out. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly it. Um, and then this is uh, just to wrap up that bit. Uh, he says, well, man, I'm sure glad I'm realizing this now, not 10 years earlier. I had enough to chide myself for at that time. <laughs> but his, uh, I think Ravistan was one of the Death Eaters, who cares? But he's like, oh, yeah, I could yeah, have taught like, him yeah, the spell and forced him to test the invention. Yes, that's supremely obvious in retrospect. For that matter, I could have ordered him to. Tr- I could have ordered him to try marking himself onto some disposable infant to see what happened, and like and then fucking this- executed him when it worked. Huh? <laughs> you didn't see right, that, exactly. Like, yeah, oh, it works great. Well, done. Like, oh, yeah, let me destroy your horcrux and kill you now. Dead, you can't keep me around. Yeah, but then he but, says, but uh, the "You don't see, you don't see nice ways to do the things you want to do. Even when a nice strategy would be more effective, you don't see it because you have a self-image of not being nice." And. uh he says, that's a fair observation. Indeed, now that you pointed it out, I've just thought of some nice things I can do this very day to further my agenda. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. This nice thing you speak of is a good thing to imitate. Yeah. Kroll, Professor Kroll said this with the slightest visible hesitation. Well, what he says is that I shall practice acts of goodwill until my mind goes there easily. And Harry is just like, it says a, a chill around down his spine because he had said that without the slightest visible hesitation. Lord Voldemort was absolutely certain that he could never be redeemed. He was the tiniest, or he wasn't the tiniest bit afraid of it happening to him. And uh, yeah, and he only like, thinks this is where, like, like, like he's imitating what good people would do, right? And he explains that, hey, you know, maybe you should try, uh, you know, if your goal is to be happy, you know, like making other people happy and doing nice things is uh, is a really good way to get there. And then. He says, do you really think I never thought of that? And this is where we talked about it at the beginning, but he like yeah. did do the whole nice thing, but it didn't, it didn't take. So he wrote it off as a fair try and went upon his way. Yeah. Um, and he says, but yeah. And it's sort of like his evaluation of whether or not like that was worth doing was so very kind of disconnected. He was like, yeah. And you know, they named kids after me and yeah, I saved them, but it was, you know, I was just bored and it didn't amount to much. Like it sort of like demonstrated his like complete, the brokenness of his ability to, he saw no value at all to the fact that like, Oh, he did actually make people's lives better, but what did that do for him? Not much. It didn't feel like anything in particular. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bummer. I mean, you know, like he's, he's more broken than just like, you know, it's one thing, like if you're depressed, you know, maybe helping people wouldn't make you feel good. Right. Like 
I guess not to soapbox, but I've had that problem. Like, you know, I, I remember talking to my, uh, my psychologist before the world ended and people stopped going out. Like, uh, he's like, Oh, well, you know, you should feel pretty proud of that. Pretty accomplished. And I'm like, yeah, I should, but I don't like, I don't have like the good feelings that are supposed to come with doing these things. And so like, it's possible to be that empty. And yet even not an empty, is the wrong word. It's, it's possible to not have the wire connect there exactly properly. But even when I was in, you know, the, the deepest parts of being depressed, like I still realized that like doing nice things is the right thing to do. Like I was able to abstractly acknowledge that even if it doesn't make me feel good, I'm still doing, you know, a good thing. Voldemort doesn't even have that. Right. Like, yeah, yeah I totally came across as like, like, Oh, this is the person like enjoys making people scream because screaming is like less boring than silence. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh, it's, he's more empty than just not even like, registering their happiness on an emotional level. He just doesn't care about their happiness, even in an abstract way. So yeah, Harry kind of asks him in desperation. He's like, were you happy as Lord Voldemort then? And Quirrell's like, yeah, yeah, I think you already know the answer to that one. He's like, then why? What the fuck? You know, I'm you, I'm based on you. So I know Professor Quirrell isn't just a mask. I know he's somebody you could really have been. So why not just stay that way? Take your curse off the defense position and just stay here. Use the Philosopher's Stone to take David Monroe's shape and let the real quarrel in this quarrel go free. If you say you'll stop killing people, I swear I won't tell anyone who you really are. And uh, he's, it's, he says, there are perhaps 15,000 wizards living magical Britain, child. There used to be more. There's a reason they're afraid to speak my name. You'd forgive me that because you like my battle magic lessons? <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> Harry's inner, said Harry's inner Hufflepuff. Yeah, or seconded. Seriously, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> He says, I'm not going to forgive you, but it's better than another war. And when he tries to say, you know, yeah, sure. Go ahead and tell Tom Riddle that 40 years ago. Um, but I don't think I'd have found lasting happiness. And why not? Because I still would have been surrounded by idiots and I wouldn't have been able to kill them. And this is where he says, killing idiots is my great joy in life. And I'll thank you not to speak ill of it until you tried it yourself. I know for me, like reading that, that was sort of like the final, like, you know, you're not ever going to change this guy. There's yeah. no it's over for him. Yeah. And then Harry's like, well, there has to be something that makes you happier. Why? Is there some scientific law I've not yet encountered? Um. <laughs> yeah. And this whole thing about like how, like, Oh, happiness is not for you or me. It sounds like so very like kind of hollowly philosophical. Uh, like it was just kind of some justification for being how he wanted to be in the first place. Like, right. Well, yeah, this doesn't make me happy, but Oh, nobody can be happy. Blah, blah, blah. You and I, so those such as we, the esteemed, do not value happiness above all else. The esteemed, yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, granted, Harry did turn down the offer to like choose that warm and happy path of being in Gryffindor or Hufflepuff to, I guess, you know, and it wasn't exactly clear like why having nice friends, I guess maybe because make him more complacent. You know, if he wasn't constantly competing with his peers, he might not push himself to his fullest potential. That's what Harry was worried about. Um, you know, if, if there was camaraderie rather than uh competition with his with his peers he would have just found peace having friends rather than having to strive to always be the best version of himself oh yeah that's actually supremely obvious the false yeah that false choice that like oh like having friends be important to you and being a nice person does like not come at the cost of like doing great things and having ambition and you know remaining you know logical i can push back on that a little bit that's like it, it, it doesn't it's not a it's not a binary choice, but it is a bit of a trade off. Like every, you know, um, it's it's interesting. Like every every hour you spend, you know, 
watching a movie with your friend is an hour you're not spending reading and learning more to further your ambitions, right? Like if you're like, and don't get me wrong, it, it's 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 a trade-off worth making if you're a healthy person because we realize that it's worth having friends to, you know, make, to achieve our other goals of like being well-rounded and happy, positive folks. But like that there, there is something true to that. Like, uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to think. Yeah, of, I guess. Like, I mean, yeah. If, uh, if you were going to just like pull back and, and go with like the reptile interpretation of like maximizing the positivity of the outcome. Um, yeah, I guess you could look at the, so yeah, if you were going to measure it against some goal of like, oh, I'm going to become like the richest or the most powerful, or I'm going to become president of the United States, then like quote, wasting time on making friends doesn't serve that goal other than some like very Spock evaluation of like, how does having friends advance the goal of becoming rich and powerful? Exactly. Um, so yeah, I get, I mean, yeah, I guess if you were going to like totally, yeah, if you're going to go all in on it, but um, yeah, yeah, and I guess, but the, I, alternately, that means that you put like zero value on on a, any of those other things. So I guess, yeah, in that terms, it is a trade off, but it's a trade off like to pick the other way, where like having no friends is not at all a problem as long as you got to be rich and powerful. Um, so yeah, yeah, I guess it's a trade off, but it's you know, but either way is a trade off. Like, oh, I'm, you know, I've decided to forego being a decent human being in order to become president. Yeah. Um, and don't get me wrong. Like a trade-off makes it sound like you're trading, you know, uh, like it makes it sound like you don't care about one or the other, but like they can both be really valuable. Like it's, it's probably just a matter of, of fact that like, if I wasn't in a committed relationship, I'd be like more proficient in my career, which is also a goal I have. Right. But like, because at, you know, in the evenings after work, if I, you know, lived alone and had nothing, nothing to do, I'd probably spend time in addition to goofing around playing video games and recording podcasts, I'd probably like also spend my off hours like learning relevant shit to make myself more badass at work. Yeah, I guess but like instead, that. I actually really enjoy watching TV with my wife. Like it's it's a trade off I'm more than happy to make, but it is a trade off nonetheless. Yeah, I guess yeah, the Hufflepuff straw man would be the like, oh, I am the most well liked, you know, beggar on the freeway exit. <laughs> right. Um, so. Yeah, but it, it's clearly not an either or. It's just a it's a it's a it's a balance, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the chapter wraps up. Um, I do like this. He says, "Beyond that, there's a little more to say between Tom Riddles." Just a fun line. Um, and then he says, "I want a taco." Right. And well, this is the only like it's not important, but it does end. He he throws the cloak of invisibility back to Harry and says, "Now for the mirror." Um, yeah, and I guess we don't know much. Like, we don't have the specifics on what's the importance of now Harry gets the invisibility cloak. Nope, but we're gonna find out next week in oh. our ah. Oh, damn it, I had that like lined up as like a find out next week, and uh, we want more chapter or whatever that. You know, I biffed it. This, I almost had it, and I dropped it. I was gonna do and, like a like end of a TV we're show. Entirely outing the the lack of editing that goes on this podcast because. People like how the sausage all is made. Of, all of this is, you know, fixable with enough effort on your part. Because fuck if I've ever edited anything. But, but it won't be fixable. Yeah, because you know we're starting to keep it real. That's right. This is the authentic podcast experience. Yep. So for next week, it's it's tough. And people people have read this will know. Like we're coming up on like a bunch of short chapters that like have good stopping points. But I don't want to do a forty five minute episode. So like. I'm not, I'm still working out how I'm going to divide up the next handful of chapters, but I think for next week, it's simple enough. We're going to do 
109 through 111. So we're going to do three chapters next week. They're not that long, but it's really the only way to like keep dividing things up. So uh, at least, you know, we did a solid episode this time. We went like two, we've had some like, yeah, no, I think, I think it worked out well. So okay. yeah, Better and then, you know, like, it's, it's not like, just what, time, it's, it's content. Yeah, it was short. Second. But this one, uh, I have no idea how long it'll take us to cover, but you know, you never really know until you get into it. But next week we'll be doing chapters 109, 110, and 111. 111. That's what I was going to say, and then I tripped myself up. All right. Well, in that case, see you next week, everybody. Bye, folks.